Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Action Radio. This is Greg Penglis coming to you from the historic district of downtown Milton on the banks of the beautiful Blackwater River. And now let's get into Action Radio. I was just typing something uh, in my uh, announcement section here. COVID law, con- law conference. Uh, apparently, <laughs> well, not apparently, but th- there is uh, what's, uh, what's apparently interesting is that I'm not there. <laughs> and I don't want to sound like I'm uh, you know, mad or angry or, or upset or pouting or childlike or anything like that. I, I really don't. Uh, I think there's a valid reason that uh, Action Radio should have been invited. Um, but and I'm, like I say, I'm trying not to sound like, you know, like like it sounds. So maybe I'm maybe I'm totally off base here and just you know being unrealistic. Anyway, so there's a there's a conference the 25th and 26th. So that'd be this weekend in Atlanta. It's a COVID uh, legal conference where they're looking for all kinds of ways to uh, handle the massive litigation uh, against all the vaccine injuries and things like that. Well, the whole key uh, to this entire conference is vaccine product liability, and the only you know group that's talking about legislation with vaccine product liability is Action Radio. We are it. Uh, I, I don't see anything else on the horizon, and people think about it, but the, the response is, oh, Congress will never pass that. Well, if that's your attitude, then Congress will never pass that. Uh, I, I don't, I, I've long since passed that attitude. I don't worry about what Congress won't do. That's the least of my concerns. What I'm concerned with is what the American people will do. And the simple answer is, if you shared the bill enough times, they're going to pass it. Okay, that's just how that's how lobbying works. You know, if there are more of us than there are lobbyists and more dollars, more more votes than dollars, then we win. It it literally is that simple. But because everybody's already given up because they've already thrown in the towel, they've already raised the white flag. Oh, no, Congress will never pass it. It's a very convenient excuse to say, I don't have to do anything about this because, well, Congress never passed it. So therefore, the ergo, I don't have to do anything about it. Okay, well, that's the wrong attitude. That's, that's, what, that's what allows Big Pharma to win. Big Pharma wins because they have the money and they don't mind spending it. Um, there was a, an article that just on the news that just came out on One American News talking about the Dole Buyout, which is, that's B-Y, uh, was it, uh, Birch Buy, B-A-Y-H, Buy. And it should be by BYE, right? By, <laughs> but it's not. It's by. So the the the, the Dole Buy Act was a horrible piece of legislation, which allowed government, uh, basically what I call you know Dr. Fascist and the health Nazis, to uh, to be able to make money off royalties for licensing and patenting um, medicine and, and drugs and medical devices uh, that they regulate. Well, that's insane. <laughs> That's irrational. Yet that's that's one of the biggest basis. That's the, probably the biggest basis for um, for the government sponsoring of, of the uh, the non vaccine of the jab because they make money off it. Okay, so everybody makes money. So they, they take taxpayers' money. The government makes money because they get to regulate it, license it, and make the royalties. That's where Doctor Fascist gets tons of his money, probably billions. You know, then you've got the whole uh, big pharma. They make money because they don't have any liability. You know, so, so the taxpayer pays for the research, the development, the marketing, the storage, the transportation, the, uh, uh, the manufacturer, you know, uh, and, every, and, every, and the liability because they don't pay. <laughs> we, we pay the liability with, uh, with hospital costs, with health insurance, with, uh, with injuries and deaths and all the things that are happening from the jab. We pay the liability. Well, why should we pay the liability for something they made? That's, that's you know, 
that's not fair. You know, let's have Big Pharma pay their fair share. <laughs> so that's my new slogan. Make Big Pharma pay their fair share. Make them pay for the liability for the things that they produce, that they don't tell us what's in it. I don't even know if they know what's in it. I can tell you what's in it from what I've uh, gathered over the last you know, three years of researching it, this. Um, there is um, messenger RNA that tells your body to make spike proteins. Those proteins end up in massive blood clots. There's graphene oxide. There's iron that magnetizes. Um, there's nanoparticles. There's, there's, you know, there's like lipid nanoparticles, you know, fat, you know, surrounding these, these little tiny things. Really, nano makes you know, really small. What else is in there? HIV, snake venom. There's a bunch of things in there. Uh, and that's, this is only a partial list because nobody knows exactly what's in there. And why they haven't taken, why no one's taken the sample to a, a private lab and done a spectroanalytical analysis uh, and find out exactly what's in it. You, know, you guys know spectral analysis? That's where every, uh, every element, uh, every substance has a, a chromatograph, in other words, a spectrum of light. And I think they shine light through it. And it separates the various components out into their spectral, you know, properties. And as they reflect the light back, you can tell what's in there. <laughs> okay. So, so the, the, I mean, there's ways to find out what's in there. But nobody seems to have gone to a private lab. I, I can't afford it, you know, to find out what's in there. <laughs> wouldn't be too tough to do. It, wouldn't, it really wouldn't be that hard uh, to find out what's in there. But, of course, the, because there's no liability, they're not going to tell you. They don't care. They're not liable. It doesn't matter. So you have to understand liability is freedom. If you, can, if you can hold somebody accountable for what they do, if you can hold somebody responsible, then you have the freedom and they have the responsibility, which is the way it's supposed to be. Right now, they have the freedom and we have the responsibility. We are responsible because we don't hold them responsible. That's how it works. Responsibility has to go somewhere. You know, and who's it to go to? The friends, the family, the coworkers, the, uh, you know, the, the health insurance companies, it goes to the, the doctors, the, the good ones, <laughs> you know, nurses and medical staff and all the people that are fighting you know, the jab and all the consequences of the government, uh, you know, vaccine hoax. That's the problem. Uh, Calman just said, hey, Calman. Yeah, I'm having a great time. Um, so that's what's going on there. So the, the point of this is that to have uh, a massive legal conference on COVID litigation and not to v- invite the bunch that actually, well, actually, I wrote this one. This is one of my bills. But to, to not invite, well, I'll, I'll be selfish, me, you know, to a conference to tell them, look, here's the bill you should be lobbying. All you, the national trial lawyers should be the first ones behind vaccine product liability. The fact that they are not staggers me considering the amount of emails and phone calls I've made to the National Trial Lawyers Association. I don't know what the problem is, but they're going to hold an entire conference. There's probably 30 speakers. This is going on for two days, and not one of them is going to talk about our bill for vaccine product liability. And five of them have been on the show. (laughs) That, to me, is irrational. That is insane. Why would you have a legal conference and not talk about the bill, the legislation, that would allow you to do everything that you want to do in your legal conference? So let me just put that question out there. That's the first topic. We've got more. <laughs> There's a lot more going on today. Um, Bill Fecky is not here, but he should be soon. So, so the, the lovely and talented Bill Fecky um, will be back here. The, the golden voice of, of charm and sarcasm will be back here at some point, uh, hopefully fairly soon. Probably listening now. He's like, all right, anyway, it's okay. I got the mic. I can do that. <laughs> That's what happens here. All right. So let's, let's see what Cal Man says. 
Uh, it says, listening to you talk about the contents of a vaccine. I haven't read this comment. I was reading it right over the air, but it's already posted, so, you know, it's okay. Listening to you talk about the contents of the vaccine, there was a German guy who was whistleblowing about the molecular structure of the messenger RNA vac, stating the, the structure was like razor blades in the veins. Unfortunately, he died. Um, coincidentally. Yeah, anybody that seems to be blowing the whistles about this, uh, any of the doctors, like the Wuhan doctors, the, the, the people that announced that there was a leak from the Wuhan lab, yeah, they're dead too. <laughs> you know, a lot of people are dead. Uh, the person who was going to testify against Hillary Clinton died in, the, uh, in, in a business jet <laughs> accident. How about, the, oh, I know she was testifying, but they just had somebody uh, die uh, in a business jet while strapped into a seat and everybody else was fine. <laughs> How did that happen? <laughs> Okay, so that's, so that's going on. All right, so we've got uh, Wendy. Wendy Arthur's going to be up here at the bottom of the hour. Uh, yeah, coincidence, exactly. Uh, if, you're, if you're listening to the podcast, you don't see the live chat that I'm reading from. This is why it's really critical sometimes. At least, you know, I don't care if it's 2 in the morning. Well, I do care, but, you know, uh, if you can catch a live show, you'll, you'll see how the dynamic works. That I have a live chat. People can actually type in as I'm talking. Uh, and this is what makes it really exciting here. Uh, so now it took me a while to figure out how to use it, but now that I'm going, we're, we're in good shape. Okay, so let's, let's see what else is going on. Um, so that's, that's the law conference. Um, we've got uh, an author today who's coming in at, in the 8 o'clock hour. So Wendy's at 7.30. That's the bottom of the hour. Uh, Sandra L., let me see if I can get her name right here, Rostirola, sounds Italian. She's actually Australian. Um, she's, uh, her family had multiple suicides. Um, we're going to talk about family dysfunction and, uh, and suicide. And her book is called Making Friends with Monsters. And anybody that's listened to the show for any length of time knows that I grew up in a completely dysfunctional family. A lot of people did. It's not just me. You know, there's a lot of folks out there. In fact, I think more than not, I would be willing to bet that over half the families out there have some measure of uh, dysfunction and it, it, it limits people's potential. So I know mine was by decades. I lost about, you know, 30 years of, uh, of you know, what went wrong, you know, and how do I figure it out? Fortunately, I did figure it out, went through a massive depression, came out the other side just fine, and here I am. Uh, for the rest of my life, I don't have to worry about it because I went through the process. The biggest problem uh, and mistake that people make is take drugs and, uh, and, and just and bury, you know, what, what they're supposed to deal with. You have to deal with it. It hurts. It hurts like hell. But once you deal with it, and come out the other side. And once, you, once you've waded in the dark underworld with the psychopaths and the sociopaths and the crazy people out there, once you've been in that world, because a lot of us are in it and don't know it, and then when you come out the other side and you, and you get back to normal world, you know, the blue pill people, and you look around, you can see the psychopaths and the sociopaths. They, they just stand out like crazy. It's like those TV shows where only one person can recognize the aliens. You can recognize the aliens. <laughs> and we'll talk about that too. And the third hour I haven't figured out yet um, because last night I was playing music locally. And I found a Tuesday night gig. Uh, it's an open mic, and I get to kind of just sit in and jam with acoustic players, with hard rock players. That's a heavy metal band. First of all, they were too loud, <laughs> so I had the earplugs in for them. But uh, otherwise, it was really fun. So that's my outlet. Uh, I play a lot of electric guitar, uh, especially at the end of every day. So, I'm getting, you know, I'm getting good at it, I think. <laughs> at least I hope so. We'll find out. All right, so let's, let's get into something that I just discovered right before the show. And this is where you, you never know what's going to happen. That's what makes action radio so much fun. So this, uh, I got this. Uh, oh, you know, I got the heater on behind me. I don't think you can hear it. But uh, just to be on the safe side, I'm going to reach around and turn it off and then play something for you real quick. What if I can do this in 17 seconds? I probably can. If not, you'll hear silence for just a few seconds. Let's play Biden's dark winter. So I need, I need a quick break. So this, I, may, I actually made this before the, uh, the 2020 election as, a, as like, this can't happen. This is like the worst case scenario. There's no way this could happen, right? And guess what? It happened. So I'll be right back. 
Joe Biden's dark winter. No freedom, no liberty, no guns, no representation, no oil, no coal, no nuclear power, no space force, no constitution, no family gatherings, no vacations, just taxes, work, misery, masks, lockdowns, and ever more government. This is what will happen if you let Marxists steal the election. This has been a public service announcement of Action Radio, reminding you it's time to get off your butt and save your country. Hmm. Okay, I'm back. So that worked out, actually. So I, my heater's just uh, is using the, the cool air. So I have a little space heater. It's freaking cold in Florida here. <laughs> it's not supposed to be this cold. Okay, this is we're, – we're like three-quarters of the way through March, and it's still cold. That's, that's ridiculous. I'm going to check the temperature right now and tell you my screen's too bright. It's probably set on, like, night setting. Yeah, I'll turn that down a little bit. And the current temperature in Milton, Florida, the uh, center of the universe, um, is 45 degrees. <laughs> no wonder I'm cold. And the high today, what's it going to go up to? Hopefully, it says 76, so that's, that's bike riding weather. Uh, so at some point, I might hit the trail. So we'll see. All right, so comment says, yeah, uh, suffer from a depression too. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, you got to deal with it. And so for, for Calman, who said, who's, I think a lot of people have and don't talk about it. Um, that's why I talk about it on the show. I think a lot of, uh, again, I would say over half the people in this country grow up with, in a family with some kind of dysfunction. Um, and because of that, uh, it, again, it limits your potential in ways that you can't imagine. And you've got to go through the process. You know, I describe depression as walking neck deep in molasses. You can't move. You literally cannot move. Everything is like a, it's like the biggest strain in the, in the world just to move, <laughs> you know, just to lift your arms and legs and get up and do something. And you can't because like literally the weight of the world is on you. But once you get through it, once you get through it uh, and have sorted out the things that you have to sort through, then your body doesn't do that to you again. Depression is the body's way of saying, you're going to deal with this. <laughs> you're going to deal with this right now. And you're not going to be able to deal with anything else. And then, of course, the meds come in and change that and cover it all up. All right, let's uh, switch around a little bit here. Seymour Hirsch, my new favorite uh, uh, author uh, and investigative reporter, liberal though he is, uh, is doing some really good work uh, talking about how Brandon blew up the, the Nord Stream pipeline between Russia and Germany. Hmm, great move. An act of war that, uh, you know, and then people get mad at Russia dumping some fuel on one of our drones. So, so our government blows up their pipeline. Uh, and then all the news talks about as well. We had a drone that had some fuel dumped on it. I, <laughs> that, that, this is only the beginning, folks. <laughs> a lot more things are going to happen because they're, they're pissed off. They lost their pipeline. This is where Russia gets, them, Russia gets their money from. Considering that you know, the United States caused the Ukraine war by making uh, Ukraine a member of NATO, something they never had to do, especially because NATO is nowhere near the North Atlantic. NATO is the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Ukraine is in Central, or actually is in Eastern Europe next to Russia. If, if anybody has not looked at a map and seen where Ukraine is, I would advise you to do that. It will make the situation much clearer as to why we have no business being there. Seymour Hirsch, the cover-up. The Biden, he says Biden administration. I, I, I don't go, I'm not that charitable because <laughs> I, don't, I don't believe in lies. The, the Brandon insurrection continues to conceal its responsibility for the destruction of the Nord Stream pipeline. And that is spelled N-O-R-D, which I believe is either German or, or uh, Russian for north. <laughs> you know, stream would be, you know, oil going through a pipeline. So the Nord Stream pipelines are the North Sea, uh, actually stream might be sea. It's basically the pipelines that run in the North Sea between Russia and Germany. He says, it has been six weeks since I published a report based on anonymous sourcing, which is okay. Reporters can do that. That's how people tell reporters things, that they protect their sources. Okay. Anyway, it says, anonymous sourcing 
naming, uh, well, let's call him resident with an R, resident Joe Biden, as the official who ordered the mysterious destruction late September of the Nord Stream 2, uh, a new $11 billion, this isn't cheap, $11 billion pipeline was scheduled to double the volume of natural gas delivered from Russia to Germany. The story gained traction in Germany and Western Europe, but was subject to a near-media blackout in the U.S., except on Action Radio and a bunch of other folks, right? Because we, we report stuff that, uh, you know, One American News, Newsmax had it, but uh, we had it too. And we probably had it first because I, I tend to report these, you know, literally minutes after they come in my inbox if that's when the show starts. He says German intelligence agencies attempted to add to the blackout by feeding the New York Times and the German weekly Die Zeit false cover stories to, to, to counter the report that Biden and U.S. operatives were responsible for the pipeline's destruction. See, nobody's still, still not talking about it. You know, the most important news is the news that nobody's talking about. This would be the most important news uh, that I can see right now. It looks like Calman's on the line. Let me get to him in just a little bit. Um, press aides for the White House and Central Intelligence Agency have consistently denied that America was responsible for exploding the pipelines. Well, they're right. America was not responsible. <laughs> Joe Biden, Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, Susan Rice, and whoever else is in the shadow government, um, the, the, the sailors and uh, underwater and demolition people, and the Norwegians for dropping the sonar boys, that's who's responsible. <laughs> you know, let's just put the blame where the blame lies. Uh, and the military, well, they're just following orders, right? So, you know, it's okay. <laughs> All right. Anyway. It's interesting they used regular Navy divers rather than uh, uh, Navy SEAL divers because if they'd used the special forces, they would have had to report to Congress. So they knew they didn't want to report to Congress, so they used the regular Navy divers uh, who did the job. And I'm sure, you know, it's probably one of the more exciting things they could do because this normally would go to the special forces uh, an operation of this type. Um, but uh, that way they'd have to report to Congress. So this is how I know it happened because they purposely deceived Congress not having to report it. Uh, if they did report it, they, you know, then uh, then I wouldn't worry about it. But this, in fact, they didn't. You know, what else are they not reporting? I mean, it just it just never stops. He says there is no evidence that, that any reporter assigned there has yet to ask the White House press secretary whether Brandon has Brandon's my word had done what any serious leader would do: formally task the inter- the intelligence community to conduct a deep investigation with all of its assets and find out just who had done the deed in the Baltic Sea. Yeah, there's a, there's a, a deplorable, as Hillary would say, lack of curiosity on the part of the Brandon insurrection as to who actually blew up the pipeline. They don't want to talk about it. Why don't they want to talk about it? Well, because they did it. That's why it's pretty simple. You know, guilt by, uh, by action. You know, do I have proof they did it? No. Seymour Hurst seems to think so. I think he's a pretty good source. Okay. And, and just look at it logically. You know, who, would Russia do it? Love their own pipeline? No, of course not. Would Germany do it? Love the pipeline giving them natural gas? Of course not. Would China do it? Hmm, possibly. Except that China and Russia are now friends because of Brandon's, you know, complete ineptitude and stupidity and uh, insanity. Um, so Russia and China, so China wouldn't do it, although I originally thought they would. Well, who does that leave? Norway? They're probably not going to do it on their own. You know, I don't know if they have the technology. They might. Norway could do it because they want to export gas too. But I don't think they, they quite had the balls to blow up a pipeline. So who's the one person who has no clue on reality, who has no grasp on what the situation is in the world today, who doesn't even know where he is minute to minute, day to day, year to year, still thinks he's vice president and, and thinks, or I don't know what he thinks. I don't even know if he thinks. Who's the one person who could uh, get away with plausible deniability because he would have forgotten it, you know, with the next ice cream cone? Joe Biden, <laughs> you know, the perfect fall guy, the perfect foil, the perfect idiot, uh, the perfect uh, puppet uh, in, in a sea of puppet masters with too many strings attached. That's why. That's why I believe it happened. 
Okay, and then he says here, according to a source within the intelligence community, the president has not done so, nor will he. <laughs> Why not? Because he knows the answer. And that's from the article. Uh, let me get, uh, I'm going to read more of this. I don't want to get to Calman real quickly here and, uh, and see what's going on. Calman, good morning. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? Cal- oh, there you are. Are we on the speakerphone? No, I shouldn't be right now. No. Oh, okay. Well, you're on the air. You're live. You're not just listening. This is live. All right. Nord Stream 2. Oh, you're talking my language. Geopolitics. All Go right. So Trump, Trump back in 2018 was telling Germany, hey, you know, don't do Nord Stream 2, blah, blah, blah. You're going to regret it. Right? Mm-hmm. So Ukrainian invasion happened. We're talking about cutting off natural gas, Turk Stream. We're talking about all the pipelines, et cetera. But the only one that mm-hmm. was underwater Nord Stream 2. It's the most efficient one. Our government said it was Ukrainian, Ukrainian, like special ops, stuff like that. Ukraine doesn't have any access to the Baltic Sea. Do they have a navy? (laughs) Does Ukraine have a navy or any navy ships for that matter? Yes, protecting grain. All they do is export food for the most part. But I mean, so. But anyway, you know, to be able to perform that type of operation, I, mm-hmm. it was given. And you know, Seymour Hersh was like, even when I read his initial article, I was like, yeah, it's a given. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, we talked um, about it when it first came out. I think it was, uh, he said, six weeks ago. When we could, and I remember when the pipeline blew up and we immediately speculated. You know, and the most likely two people that we came up with on the show was China and us. Uh, well, the U.S. government. I wouldn't call it us because they're completely separate. Uh, and we figured China might do it to instigate a war between the, Russia and the United States. Now that China and Russia are, are like, you know, buds, you know, like drinking buddies, um, that, that doesn't make sure. sense anymore. So the only party left who would, who would have anything they think would gain would be the Brandon insurrection, which A, wants to destroy the United States, and B, wants to instigate a war with Russia. Uh, to either destroy the United States or be imperialist and keep the permanent war class, uh, the military-industrial complex, going. So the only country who would it make any sense to do it to, uh, with reasons that are bad, but still they would do it, you know, but still it's, it's understandable, uh, their bad reasoning, would be the United States. It would be our federal government. No one else would really gain from this, sure. except maybe Norway, maybe. But I don't think they're willing to blow up a pipeline to sell more natural gas, because that would bring all the heat on them and the European Union. I can't see them doing it. United States is selling so much natural gas to Europe, it's silly. But um, one thing that I actually do want to talk about in World War II, okay, okay. Um, when Churchill, Stalin, and um, Roosevelt sat there in what, Tehran, I think is what it was, and they Yalta? discussed a coalition. Some of the Yalta Conference? Disaster. Yeah. Yeah, Yalta Conference. And they uh-huh. talked about, you know, um, combining forces to be able to take down Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. Russia put so much force into their front, going from east to west in Russia, et cetera. And we came in very late. Okay? You can you look at the numbers of fatalities. Russia lost what, ten million? Twenty. Twenty lost. Russia lost 20? twenty million people. Uh, Russia you lost. lost fact, we've only got about. Uh, we've only got about seven minutes because Wendy's going to join us at the bottom of the hour. But Russia, eighty um, percent of the men born in nineteen twenty-two. Who were, who were 18 in 1940, 80% of the men born in 1922 in Russia were killed in the war. 80%. Yeah. 
Sounds about right. So when it comes to the Nord Stream 2, I think we created with Germany and almost the entirety of Europe um, a vassalhood to the United States. Because if you look at the GDP and economic output of Germany and, oh, let's say Belgium too, natural gas provided so much of the industrial productivity because of energy production. Okay? Right. And Russia was the leading supplier of it. That's why the United States constantly selling it, selling uh, LNG to Germany in order to keep their productivity. But it created a vassalhood where we create Germany. We, we sustain Germany now, the largest economic competitor in Europe. We sustain them. We create a vassalhood. Well, see, that's ridiculous. We should be out of NATO. We, NATO, I, I've long said that as soon as the, the Russian, uh, as soon as the Soviet Union collapsed and became the Russian Federation, it was time to, to get out of NATO and leave it as a European issue. We, we should have had them pay their fair share. Like what Trump No. Have them pay just, just leave. GDP. No, just leave. You see, you can't, I, I always believe in, in the, 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 the path of easiest um, you know, the, the quickest way to what you want. The quickest thing that I, that we want, that I wanted was to get out of NATO. But if you, make, if, you, if you spend time, it takes time and effort to force them to pay their fair share. And they're still going to want to direct it. I would say leave NATO, let them screw it up themselves, let them battle with the Eastern European countries to either include them or not. Let them figure out what to do with Russia. It's not our problem anymore. True. It creates a lack of space. What's that? But it is the bottom of the hour. And no, you got five I should minutes. get out of this conversation. No. You got five oh, minutes. Okay, okay, fine. Um, yeah, don't leave yet. It's just getting interesting. <laughs> it would show a lack of faith. You know, when, when the United States became the security apparatus of the world, which we shouldn't have been, we shouldn't have been right. so broad in expanding our military presence across the world. You know, military bases all across, you know, surrounding Iran, you know, all everywhere, everywhere. I can't even talk about how far we've worked on for an empire. Kid. Diego well, we, Garcia. We that, that's strategic. <laughs> Very much so. What? MH370 or something? <laughs> anyway, um, but we shouldn't have had this strong military presence and be able to govern the entire world on international law that what we deem is the only rule of law. Like, we, we practically write the laws, you know, on international uh, trade, especially on water routes. Uh-huh. But now, the whole world has had no security apparatus besides us, and if we were to instantaneously disappear out of it, get out, shut down 200 military bases out of the 400 that we have all across the world, okay, what vacuum do we create? What vacuum do other people come in? I mean, Afghanistan is a perfect example. We left there so quick, okay, and it was terribly done. I admit it was terribly done, but we left there so quick, and that vacuum happened instantaneously. The whole people said, I'm not going against the Taliban. Hey, I'm for the Taliban. I'm a security officer. And but they're always going to say that. The only question was not, not if the war would end, but when the war would end. And, and we, knew, we all knew what would happen. It would go back to the way it was before the war. Because the war would never should have been fought. We never should have been there. The only legitimate military action I've seen by anybody was when Trump killed al-Baghdadi and Soleimani. That's it. Because that saved yeah. untold hundreds of thousands of lives, billions, possibly trillions of dollars. Uh, and it stopped a lot of really bad things from happening. 
Two people. Held that guy. Two drones. Perfect. What's it? Yeah. Soleimani, that was, you know, it needed to happen. I'm going to be honest from an intelligence viewpoint as right. a security apparatus and thinking about the United States and all of our allies. Soleimani and the leader of the Quids forces mm-hmm. probably didn't need to go. It, I mean, strategically. Well, see, and I'm, I'm was, not in favor uh, of political leading. assassination. You know, I mean, I, I don't think this is necessarily a great policy. But since it was done, you know, compared to what, uh, compared to starting a war in a country and building up a nation and spending trillions of dollars, what was Afghanistan? Six trillion? Some ridiculous, or maybe combined with Iraq. It's an insane amount of money that we don't have. I think you're right about six trillion. Yeah, I think you're right about six. Yeah. Um, and things always go back but, to the way they um, were before, once we leave. So all we do is spend money and leave and accomplish absolutely nothing. Except a lot of people, a lot of our people are killed and injured for no reason. And I'm sorry that the veterans, I support the troops, but I don't support them going to stupid wars. And that's all they've fought uh, basically since World War II, which is the last declared war. The last legal war was World War II. Every war since has been uh, well, unconstitutional. You break it, you buy it, you know. And that's obviously <laughs> what happened with Iraq and Afghanistan. We broke it, so we bought it. But it obviously didn't work, you know. Mm-hmm. So why do you think we blew up the pipeline? Why do you think Brandon blew up the pipeline? Uh, create Doppelhood and um, tell Germany there's no coming back from this. And Poland yeah, as well. Uh, no uh, partially, from- you know, I think the real reason... I think that the I think Obama and Clinton are so obsessed with Russia because uh, they always use Russia whenever they they talk about their their boogeyman even though they love communism which is kind of ironic. I think they did it simply to deprive uh, Russia of money to fight the war against Ukraine. I think it's really just that simple. Well, if you look at the economics of everything, even after Nord Stream two disappeared and everything, or right. you know blown up, uh-huh. they're selling. They're they're literally taking less gas and oil out of the ground and making more money on what they're already producing. Well, supply and like demand, selling sure. selling India and China and everything. Yeah. In mm-hmm. fact, I read yesterday, China, number one importer of oil and natural gas is Russia now, no longer Saudi Arabia. Oh, so China gets it from Russia? Well, that makes sense. They're, they're buds. You know, and Saudi Arabia, they're, you know, number Brandon, one importer is from, from uh, China. Or uh, Russia yeah. and China together. Is who, India? India is second, I believe, because uh, with the largest population in the world now, got to grow food, man. Russia produces a lot of potash, fertilizer, and oil and natural gas to be able to run the machinery of agriculture. So you got to produce a lot of food. India okay, is so not just, like just to be clear, because you, you, you drop off a little bit, it's hard to hear, and Wendy's on the line, so I want to get to her. But who's the biggest, yeah. ex, who are the biggest export? So Russia's the biggest exporter of, of, of petroleum and natural gas right now, correct? And where does it go? Number China one, India? China. Number two, okay. India. Okay. All right. So they're making money. So they're making money in spite of the fact that Brandon blew up the Nord Stream pipeline. Interesting. Let me let you go. Uh, you can call back later in the show. I've got to, oh, yeah. after our, our second hour. If you want to join Jeremy in the third hour, uh, I have uh, I've yet to decide. There's a, there's a bunch of different topics from Waco um, to uh, just the economy in general to my, my points of how to fix the situation in a current Substack article. But to hang on the line if you want to listen that way, or just hang up and uh, listen on 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 um, on the internet, which is probably better. I want to hear about get... this book. I'm not even lying to you. I want to hear about um, monster book. Okay, why don't you just listen online, and, uh, and, then, and you can call back uh, then if you have a question for, uh, for Sandra when she joins us. 
Okay. Right. Talk to you then. Here we go. Here we go. Do you really want the truth? Do you have questions you can't ask in church? Welcome to the Oh My God Report. Wendy Arthur is more concerned with truth than propaganda, putting more value in scripture than religion, and more about you and your relationship with God than your membership in any church. This is Christianity with a Kick. Didn't we just have a chat about God and money last week, and, and they're just going against all the rules, they're borrowing, they're, they're paying off the wrong people, they're doing everything they can to screw up the economy. Once again, a government-imposed, you know, ungodly financial crisis for no reason whatsoever, um, doing everything wrong. Hi, Wendy. Good morning. Yes, we did have that conversation. <laughs> Proving once again, we are always ahead of the curve. We are just always ahead of the curve. That's, that's just how it works. Well, you know, that's what God wants his people to be. He wants us to be ahead of the, you know, one step ahead of the enemy, if not more. So, mm-hmm. um, because it, Doing my best. it is a battle, yeah. you know, yes, you are. And, uh, and it's important to realize, um, there's this economic system, this financial world that has been created is nothing what God wanted it to be. Um, it has to come down, and that's what we are seeing now. It is coming down. They are trying their best to shore up the stock market and everything else, all these banks closing, and and the stock market is up, and it's like, you know, what happened that day? You know, it's like pumping money into it to artificially keep it uh, up, and it's not going to work, and they're they're seeing it now because things are just coming down and down and down. Um, But the world system has to come down so that the – system God originally wanted can be implemented. So it's going to get rough, people. You know, don't think that this, oh, oh they're going to fix the bank system. No, they're not. So mm-hmm. just be ready. I, and God doesn't want his people in fear. He just has to let, he's just letting us know ahead of time, look, going to get bumpy for a little bit. Just hang on. Trust me. You know, Psalm 91, you, you come into my shelter of protection, and it won't, won't touch you or your house. You're going to be amidst the, the, the mess and the chaos, but just don't be in fear. Understand that all of this has to happen for the new to take place. So it's just kind of, um, it's kind of funny that people keep, keep trying to fix what has been wrong for centuries, <laughs> you know, in the same well, way. And they fix it with exactly this. But they always try to fix it with the things right. that caused the problems in the first place. You know, it's, it's uh, inflation right. is caused by government uh, borrowing, which comes from government spending, which comes from, you know, bogus policies. And then they raise interest rates to, to try and uh, flip the economy that they've sped up with their government borrowing. I call it the accelerator and brake uh, theory of economics, where the, the, the Congress is standing on the accelerator by spending money, and then the Fed is printing – well, the Treasury is uh, printing money, and the Fed is trying to – is the Fed and the Fed is the brake, you know, with the interest rates. So if you if you're in your car and you stand on the accelerator and the brake at the same time, your engine revs, your tires smoke, but you don't actually go anywhere, and everything breaks down. That's pretty yeah. much what was happening right now. So so this is why this is why I call it that. Yeah. But it, you know, if they did just the opposite, if they stopped all spending, stopped all borrowing. In fact, I have a constitutional amendment. Very simple. Congress shall mm-hmm. not have the power to borrow money. That would solve almost everything. Yeah. Simple. Well. 
What's got it to say about borrowing? The, the world system in place. Um, well, and that, that, you know, it, it would be a good interim. So, but here's, here's the thing. Um, <clears throat> before next week, um, we're going to, to see some stuff happening in the world mm-hmm. that um, you, it's God showing who he is. Okay. Um, that the world system does not have the power that they think they have, and, and they're already very aware that it's rumbling you know, beneath their feet, um, and they're going to get very desperate. So um, just be prepared. And God is not saying what it is. He's just saying it's coming. It's going to be big. It's going to um, show his people that he is getting the job done. It's going to be ugly for a while. It's going to be difficult for a while. But it has to happen to take down the current system that has kept people in slavery for hundreds of years. So he does not want his people in slavery. We've already talked about this several times on different shows um, Mm -hmm. from different aspects. But God is about freedom. He is about people being free. And um, the government, the way it's set up right now, Governments across the world are designed to keep the people in slavery. So, <clears throat> and, and if you think about what the world system is doing, what the elites want to implement and what they're uh, trying to implement and have been trying to implement for years um, is depopulation of the world. Yet, they think that the, we are their cash cows. We, they look at us as their peons and slaves and their serfs. Um, and they're servants, and you know they are smarter than us in their minds. So therefore, we don't deserve to do anything but serve them, and that's their whole mindset. So they want to depopulate the world for easier control. Yet they want us to work and and pay their tax our taxes so that it's their money. It does not go to the federal government. It goes to the Fed. You know, in the long run, at the end of the money chain, and they are not part of the government at all. They are individuals. The Rockefellers, you know, the, the Soros's, you, you name it. I mean, that they are getting the money. So if they're going to depopulate the world, what does that mean? In order for them to continue getting the same kind of money, then all of our money has to go to them. Because if you have less people working, that means less, you know, taxes on, on an equal basis for everybody. Mm-hmm. So therefore, what does that mean? Less people means you have to pay more money per person for them to continue their lifestyles. You know, and it was proven it, it was it was proven during the Reagan administration and the Trump administration that when you lower taxes and you increase economic activity, sure the rate of taxation is lower, but the actual tax revenue generated is far greater. You know, it, it, right. and they don't they don't see that because fundamentally <laughs> they can't see all they see is if you raise the tax rates then you'll get more money. They have no uh, these people are idiots. I mean, they really are morons. Uh, they're, they're too yep. stupid to be in control. And this is what fascinates me is that the dumbest people rise to the most powerful positions. You know, the idiocracy is here. You know, it's like, a, you know, DEI, what, what is it uh, supposed to be? It's supposed to be uh, what, diversity, inclusion, and, uh, and equity. And I call it division, extortion, and idiocracy. <laughs> you know, that's what it's, it's DEI. Yeah. And that's what we get. Well, think about division. it. Yeah. And, and because the enemy, Satan, hates freedom. He hates it. He's about control. He's about manipulation. He's about fear and intimidation. He's, that, that's his modus operandi. And so if you think about it, what are the elites doing? Same thing. Well, Slavery, control, fear. 
manipulation. It's the same thing. So, in, in, and, and as you say, you know, these people are idiots. They don't really see how it, it really works. Well, they're mm-hmm. puppets of the enemy. So how smart can they really be? Well, that's my next question was, does Satan recruit idiots, uh, give them power, use their fears against them? Um, because really smart people wouldn't fall for this kind of crap. Well, spiritually aware people wouldn't fall, uh, fall for this kind of crap. So, okay, but when you reject God, you are not spiritually aware. Yeah. So you are wide open to the enemy using you like a rag doll. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. Yeah. Uh, um, we have our <laughs> chat at the top of the hour on, uh, on family depression and dysfunction and suicide. So it's going to be interesting talking about you know, people that lose their way <laughs> big time. So it's going to be uh, uh, an interesting discussion. Well, people do lose their way. But, yeah. but the good thing is God is about redemption. Mm-hmm. He's about redeeming people from the Jesus came for. You know, mm-hmm. he died yeah. as our sin, you know, whatever that sin is that took us off the path. So, but he's here to reconcile you to the father and, mm-hmm. and say, Hey, you don't have to continue living like this. Your life doesn't have to continue on you know, the mm-hmm. way it is, you know, um, because he came to overcome all the demons that we have. So a suicide rejection of God. Now that I think about it. It's well, it's pretty much. I mean, if, if okay. you're going to truly reject God, and I, I don't mean like because you're hurt and, and you know, you, you, your parent or your child died and, and you're angry with God about that. Mm-hmm. That's not rejection of God. That's being angry with God because in your mind, and, and the lie of the enemy is, you know, you know, God could have stopped that if he wanted to. Right. You know, um, everybody has an appointed time, but if they're taken early, that was not God. That was not God. That was Satan because yep. he comes to steal, kill, and destroy according to the scriptures, and it's the truth. So blame Satan for what he's doing um, and and work it out with God because he says, come and let us reason together. If you're mm-hmm. angry with me, it's okay. Come, let's talk about it, you from me. Don't let it grow into bitterness um, and to where the enemy has a, a hold on you. Bitterness is actually called a poison in scripture. It poisons not just you, but everyone around you. So it, it's a dangerous thing to let anger grow into bitterness because mm-hmm. it puts you on a very slippery slope and you may not come back. So while you're angry, it's okay. You know, <laughs> we've had some pretty active conversations, me and God, when I've been angry. Oh, yeah. It, his, it's almost like everybody are, goes through a struggle at some point in their life and is stronger for it. Yeah. And I wonder, um, John Voigt, when he talks about, you know, being on, I remember he was on a Tucker Carlson episode, and he talks about just crying his eyes out and collapsing on the floor. And he says, oh, why is my life so hard? And then God says to him, it's supposed to be hard. <laughs> oh, <laughs> as soon as I heard that, I went, yeah. oh, okay, that makes sense. You know, oh, now I get it. <laughs> you know, so in other words, that's part of the human yeah. condition is the struggle that you go through that makes you the stronger person. I would not be here without depression. I'll tell you right now. Uh, it, it's like the best and worst thing that can happen to you. It's the worst thing because it, it's really tough. It's, it's miserable. Uh, I describe it as walking, you know, neck deep in molasses. Uh, but the good news is I never yeah. have to do it again. I've been through the process. I didn't take drugs. I worked it out, made it happen. It took two years, but here I am. So action radio and everything yeah. that's happening now is a direct result of God and working through a depression and working and not giving up and saying, I know this is a, this yeah. is a brighter future. I can't see it now, 
But, you know, and, and I, I came up with the, the expression that, uh, you know, as far as your life goes, you get to write the chapters, not the ending. And so as long as you that's, keep writing the chapters, right. you're, you're going to be okay. And so keep going. You know, so the, yeah, it, n- the ending's not up to you. Never before God took the comma. <laughs> there you go. Yes. Yeah. That makes sense. <laughs> yes. And so I just, um, and I've said this before, you know, for people, mm-hmm. if you if you haven't gotten any silver, go get some. Mm-hmm. Go get them, um, and 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 start learning the old-fashioned ways of bartering for things, um, and and learning how to do some stuff, you know, for yourself instead of depending on the store to have everything that you need. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's not going to be a long while, but it's it's going to be you know rough for a little while. So, but my my main thing is that God wants people to know is do not be in fear. If you are in fear. You are a prey of the enemy. So trust him that he is really, truly working all of this out for our good. It's not going to look like it at the beginning, but it's going to work out for our good. You know, Romans eight twenty eight. For all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose and love the Lord. I got that a little bit backwards. I was supposed to love the Lord and called according to his purpose. But it's, <laughs> That's it's okay. The, 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 plan, the, the same thing. I, I want. Yeah. I want the the principle out there. It's that God does not leave His people in the miry clay. You know, you may have gotten into there, and even through no fault of your own, because we were all taught and brought up that this is how you do things. You, you know, the you have to go to the bank and get a mortgage if you want to buy a house. You can You only have so much money, so you can't. Um, just go out and, and pay for one cash. You can't just, you know, own it outright. Oh, no. You and the bank own it until you pay it off after paying more for it than you should because of interest. And it's, we were brought up in the slavery system, and we didn't even know it. We were taught this is the way it should be. Well, that is slavery. So is I mean, saying, I figured that, you know, I figured that a long time ago. Slavery. You know, that's why I've never had a mortgage because I never wanted to be in debt to a bank. I never took out a student loan because I couldn't afford it. I didn't believe in them anyway. You know, I've never had a car payment right. <laughs> because if I can't buy the car, I don't want it. You know, and so uh, yeah. so Thank you. so the, the more you're you're debt free. I wish I were. De- I was debt free when I came to, Cal- to to Florida, but that's another story. Action radio, entrepreneurial stuff. Until it picks up, it has its consequences. But that's okay. You know, I'll pay yeah, that price. That's okay because uh, that's that's a good price. It, it will, um, yes, it is. So, and yeah. and you have the right attitude. You're positive. You're not looking at at the the here and now. You you understand that there is a future, and you've got your mm-hmm. eyes on that. Um, and it's it, we all need to do that. We all yeah. need to realize that what's going on right in front of our face right now is not mm-hmm. eternity. <laughs> this, this is just yeah. today. It's just well, going to be a short season. Is there any um, fear from people that have gotten maybe like ill-gotten gains? In other words, they've, they've manipulated the political system like, like Dr. Fascist and the health Nazis to make money off patents that they sold to industry even though they work for government. Or people that the, the Silicon Valley bank people that are going to get bailed out for things that for depositing more than a quarter million dollars in a bank account. And first of all, anybody that has more than a quarter million dollars, most Americans will never see a quarter million dollars. So the idea that the people who will never see a quarter million have to bail out the people that put multi millions of dollars in a stupid bank account of woke people who are giving all their money to Black Lives Matter, um, that's their problem. They can give the money, but they can't make us pay for it. You know, 
uh, or, or like vaccine liability. The, the, there's no vaccine liability. I mentioned this in the previous half hour. There's no vaccine liability on big pharma. The vaccine liability is on us. We have to pay. We have to pay the consequences. So is there anything from, from God that comes to these people that have used the system to make money unjustly? I'm not talking about the people that made a good product or a good service and they were entrepreneurs and they took a risk and they provided something that people want and are willing to pay for. I'm talking about all the other folks. Do they, do they have any kind of guilt at all or do they just consider it their due? And is there, is there a special place with God for them to maybe lose some of that stuff that they didn't necessarily earn, but they got through manipulation and, uh, and, oh, you know, oh, political connections, things like that. Big pardon? They're going to lose it all. Okay. Um, God has, has through, um, the prophets and not, not just one, but, but two or three. And, and when, and prophets, um, true prophets do not listen to the news. They don't listen to each other. They don't right. listen to anything. They, they mm-hmm. seclude themselves with the Lord um, and hear him um, and seek him constantly and um, because they don't want to be influenced, not even by other prophets. So, um, so when, they, when two or three of them or more come out with the same word, <coughs> you know it was the Lord speaking. Um, two of them um, that I could name right now um, have come out this past week saying mm-hmm. that the Lord told them something something very, very heavy is coming and it will, mm-hmm. be, it will happen within a week. Um, and But they didn't want to release the word until, I mean, they really spent a few days <laughs> before the Lord um, saying, look, if I say this, this I will be ruined. I will be that guy, you know, <laughs> that said this and it didn't come to that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Nobody wants that, you know. <laughs> so <clears throat> they, they really sought the Lord for confirmation and, and they both got it. And so they had to say, you know, and God's not saying what he's going to do because he's not going to let his plans be made known to the enemy. Yeah. So that he said, but tell people to get ready. And it's going to look bad. It's going to look dark. But I'm, I'm doing something good behind this, and it's for your good. Just don't be in fear. Trust me. So this is the word he wants out. So I'm, I'm just letting people know, just kind of be prepared. Seek the Lord about what he wants you to do in your situation. But y'all need to get some silver um, and take <laughs> your money out of the bank. <laughs> Yeah, I don't see and, banks as a convenience, you know, but um, but you know, as far as there's like real and unreal, you know, money in an account with a bunch of numbers on a piece of paper. You know, I think, what is this? I, I, is. I, I came I came to this realization years ago. You know, I think I thought to myself, there's a tremendous faith that the numbers that are printed on a paycheck, you know, go into a bank and then I get more numbers on on the bank account, and then those numbers go out to somebody else who gets a check or gets an automatic payment, you know, and they take their their numbers from my numbers and then they spend those numbers on other numbers. I'm thinking this is ridiculous, <laughs> this is insanity, and yet you know people because of the yeah. faith in it that uh, that it works. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, gold, silver, tangible things, you know, this is why there's a difference between people that build and do things. This is why Trump is so much different than the Washington people, why they don't understand him, because he actually builds things. He can look and say, that's my building. Yes. You know, uh, I can say, you know, especially parents can say, you know, these are my kids. Look at them now. Or I've got a book I wrote. You know, here's my book. I did something. And if nothing else happens, you know, that's there. That's always there. And I think right. a lot of these people, their problem is they don't create anything. They don't do anything. They live off a system that they think benefits them to the, uh, uh, to the detriment of, of all the rest of us here who are actually trying to build things. And, and that they think is real. And it's not. 
It's not. There is no, there isn't even a fraction. I mean, the tiniest fraction of the money in all the banks um, does not cover what we owe as far as a country goes. Mm-hmm. So there, we don't. Have, it's all fake. It's all just numbers out of the air, literally. So mm-hmm. numbers, any way they want, because it's not backed by anything real. Yeah. So that's a whole other show. But anyway, um, <laughs> what do you want to talk about? <laughs> I I just I God wants people to know it is yeah. time to truly seek Him. Um, about stuff and trust him and because things that he's been saying for literally thousands of years are now mm-hmm. coming to pass and and he just doesn't want luck, you right? caught off guard. <laughs> just, yeah, just, yeah, but just our luck. We happen to be living in these times when uh, yeah. all this stuff is happening. Well, I well, mean, I've no. always had a feeling. Be, Go ahead. Be thankful that you're in this time. This is the most exciting time in history, literally, because nothing well, actually, like I this am. I, has ever I, I happened figured, before. Yeah. I always figured the revolution was coming and I was hoping I would, I would be, you know, young enough to do something about it and old enough to know what's happening. And in my sixties is perfect because, <laughs> you know, I've still got the energy yeah. uh, to do something about it, but I got the wisdom that I wasn't born yesterday. You know, uh, although we have Thank a brilliant, you. we have a brilliant reporter. Uh, I don't know if you heard Brianna yesterday. Um, she's a teenager, just incredible the discussions we have. Uh, it, it's amazing. Um, I've got Calman on the line. Calman, I'm bringing you on for a question here in just a little bit. I'll let you ask uh, Wendy a question. But uh, but the people that um, that don't have a lot to lose, you know, the, the average American out there who who literally lives paycheck to paycheck, you know, they don't have. They're not going to lose multi millions of dollars in their bank because they don't have multi millions of dollars in their bank. They're not going to lose all their stocks. Or they're not going to lose all their value because they don't have any. The treasury bills are not going to collapse because they don't have them either. They've got their house, their, their, their kids, you know, a car, maybe two, you know, they used to be able to have a vacation home, a cottage, you know, that's gone. Um, they used to be able to live on one income that's gone too, you know, but the, most of America's looking at this and going, what's wrong with you people? This is the rich reinforcing the rich. Uh, it's like this this club that most people will never get to um, just because either they can't manipulate the system or they don't have that genius idea that gets them there. Well, and, and you have to understand that what somebody loses is, is relative. Yeah. <laughs> the person who's living paycheck to paycheck, if you take that one paycheck that they need away, it's the same as, as a rich person losing everything. Uh-huh. It's no, still losing sense. everything. So. Yeah. So uh, I, you, you can't down, downplay that, but it's and I know you, that's not your intention. I'm just saying that it's you have to understand it in, in the scale of things. So just like when that widow woman uh, gave her last two mites, you know, as opposed to the the big money that the rich people were giving as a show, you know, right. um, at, at the temple. You know, God said, who who gave more? They were giving out of their abundance, but she gave all that she had. So yeah. that was much more in God's eyes, mm-hmm. you know, it, and, it, and it came from a sincere love for God in, in her heart. They were just like, yeah, okay, we'll just throw a little extra in there. You know, it's, it's not going to affect you know, me getting my Starbucks. So you know, <laughs> um, God looks at the heart about everything, people, absolutely yeah. everything. <laughs> Yeah, but being rich isn't a bad thing. I think it's 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 the it's the 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 heart and the soul behind it. What's the, the expression I hear the time all the time? It was in a movie just the other day that it's, it's easier for uh, what a camel to pass through an eye of a needle uh, than for a rich person to go to heaven. I think that's probably one of the more misquoted things in the Bible. Would, would I be correct? 
Um, well, it's misunderstood. It's, it's okay. a true quote. It's, it's misunderstood. <clears throat> the eye of the needle is not talking about its own needle. Right. The eye of the, the, eye of the needle um, was um, one gate into a city that was very narrow and, and low. Because um, usually you know, all the traders would come into a city with their camels loaded down, right? I mean, that was their, right. their motive. You know, that was their U-Haul truck back then. So, <laughs> U-Haul camel. <laughs> and they're all leaving yeah. California, so, by the way. So, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. So in, in order for that, and they called that gate the eye of the needle. Hmm. Because in order to get through, the camel would have to get down on its knees and, and crawl through so that everything would fit. Huh. You know, um, that was on his back. So n- not an easy thing for a loaded down camel to do. Right. You know, to get down on your knees and, and crawl through this small narrow opening, you know, with all the stuff on your back. So huh. um, that's when he said it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to get to heaven. Um, because a rich man's not willing to give up what he owns. He's not willing right. to, to, you know, get down on his knees. <laughs> And understand that metaphor. So it's not wrong to have money. Money is just a tool. It's yeah. something you, you it's, it's a manner of exchange. That's what it is. Um, but the world has corrupted that into power and elitism. I have more money than you, therefore I am better than you. As yeah. if their worth is determined by their bank account. Or smarter yeah, than you, or in other words, the Bill Gates, the the the, the billionaire brainstorm. Yeah. You know, just because they have a billion dollars yeah. does not make them more intelligent. Yeah, well, you know, they're they're fixing to pay their dues in in, in God's court, so it hmm. it won't be pretty. Um, they they will they will lose everything and then they will die. So, I mean, and and then they have to face God and face to face themselves. You know, the ones that they keep saying isn't real. Surprise. <laughs> yeah, just because you think it's real, doesn't, yeah. Let me comment on his uh, or so like our geopolitical strategist person. Let's see if he has a question. He's been having a bunch of things in our live chat. Comment, you're on with uh, with Wendy Arthur. This is the Oh My God report. Do you have a question at all? Good morning. Good morning. How are you today, Wendy? I am doing fabulous. How are you doing? I know I surprised you to bring you on, but did you have a question or a comment? You don't have to. I'm just giving you the option. So- no, no, no. I actually wanted to ask something. Um, sure. I always have this quote. Um, the poor man prays every day to become rich, and the rich man doesn't pray till he becomes poor. Um, you know, we're talking well, about the changing of the system, and it, it really is happening. You know, the banks, I'm not going to go into it, but it's, it's showing in the bank. Lots of people don't realize it, but it really is showing. How do you think, and I know it's part of God's plan, how do you think the reevaluation of our society should? I mean, what 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 should we focus on? You know, I mean, we're focusing on LGBTQ. I mean, that's less than one percent of the population. You know, what, what do you think? And that's my question for you. Big question. We might well, have to take it up you know, more we next week to, too, but feel free. Feel free to start. Well, we need we need to focus on God because. What God's assignment is for you personally is not going to be somebody else's assignment, especially during this hour. And that is a, a tactic of the enemy is to keep you distracted and looking at the LGBTQ stuff and, and oh, look at this, and oh, look at that, and oh, shiny. And it's, it's not 
what God wants us to focus on. That's just stuff of the world, and it's going away. So um, our job is to focus on God and to bring righteousness back and to bring the kingdom as it is in heaven here on earth. And that's what the, the prayer was about, saying, you know, your will be done. So that's our job is to focus on God and what his will is for us at this hour. And right now it is to trust him because it's going to get rocky, but don't be in fear, but seek God because, you know, on the other side of this, and there is an other side of this, um, when, when we come out on the other side and we're going to go, oh, okay, so now we have to do something new. And what is your part in that? Would all of us have a part in it. We, we are born here at, at this time, like, like I said in Esther, you, you were, you know, born for such a time as this. You could have been born in the 1800s. You could have been born back in the first century, but no, you are born here. You are here during this time for a reason. What is your reason for being here? Seek God for that because there is going to be the other side that we get to. A really good response. I'll give you that. Yeah, we have to kind of uh, wind up a little bit here because we've got Sandra on the line. And in fact, I'm going to do what I tend to do a lot of times is bring on on a guest um, early and see if she has a question for for Wendy at all. Sandra, I don't know if you had a chance to listen. I know this is your first time on Action Radio, uh, and we have the whole hour to talk. But uh, did you have a question for Wendy at all? Did you get a chance to to listen to what we were talking about here? I did not, unfortunately, due to the early okay. hour here in Los Angeles at six a.m. Um, well, good no, eye. How's it going? To my son Hi, again. Hi. <laughs> You're already laughing at the rest of the thing. Okay, well that's fine. Wendy, let's well, just welcome, this Sandra. And, and I, I'm glad you're on, and, and, and congratulations on your book. Um, I'm excited for you, and I, I'm cheering you on. Thank you Yay. so much. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Do you have a chance you to stick around, Wendy, well, or, will, or do you have to go? I got to go. Got a full day today, but I okay. bless everybody in Jesus' name and bow now. Avoid the rush. <laughs> Contact information, websites, things like that. Uh, you can contact me on Facebook on Wendy Arthur or Art by Wendy Arthur or Dimensions Ministries. And Sounds I'll good. check in on y'all, y'all later. Have a great day. <laughs> Thanks, Wendy. Wendy's one of our, our longest standing reporters here. Absolutely a joy to have her on. I love our discussions. And Wednesday mornings, uh, 730, that's when we do it. So let's start again. Welcome, my, welcome our guest properly here with our, our usual theme. Uh, and we have today Sandra L. Rostirola. Which I probably totally butchered and mispronounced and all that kind of stuff, but that's okay. She'll tell me. Um, this is uh, going to be a fascinating topic. Now she has a new book, "Making Friends with Monsters." So we, we kind of met on Facebook on one of those, you know, people you might know. And I didn't know Sandra at all, so we're we're we're, we're messaging back and forth and we're doing all kinds of stuff. This is the first time we've talked because I would have recognized that accent immediately. But um, this is one of those topics that we do a lot of. Uh, and it's something I have personal experience with, which is dysfunctional families, narcissism, um, you know, breaking your spirit at every possible opportunity, surviving that kind of thing, and going on to do things like Action Radio totally fearlessly, w- without any reservation, without any doubt in my mind whatsoever that uh, this is going to work out fine. And so when, I, uh, when Sandra and I started uh, corresponding, I thought, I have to have you on the show. And here she is. Sandra, welcome. Hi there, Greg. And you did not butcher my name. You oh, good. Fantastic. Perfect pronunciation. Great. Let's give you a cheer to get you started. (laughs) 
So fortunately on this show, we don't have commercial breaks. You know, I might take them, but not, not during guest hours. So you've got plenty of time to talk about your story. Uh, and obviously you're from Australia. I could tell even before you told me, you know, as soon as, if, as, soon as I heard that accent, I was like, oh, yeah, okay. So let's hear your story. Start wherever you want. Go back as far as you want. Uh, I spent four years in Melbourne growing up. Uh, I was born in Canada. I was there for my first eight years, Australia for my next four years until I was 12, and then I was brought to the United States. So I understand totally being uprooted, you know, for, you know get, going away from everything you know involuntarily and starting over again, you know, three times. <laughs> so it's, uh, um, so I'm, I'm well-versed. And this with a dysfunctional family that eventually got divorced here. So, uh, so you're among friends. And we talk about these things bluntly, honestly. Don't, don't feel you have to hold back or, or be politically correct or anything like that. Uh, but uh, start where you want. Let's hear your story, and then let's, go, let's get to the book. Okay. Well, I'll give a little quick background just about myself. Born uh-huh. in Australia, in Sydney. I came to America after I graduated university. I got a Bachelor of Applied Science at Sydney University, studied what we call physiotherapy in Australia, physical therapy here in America. And recruiters from America came to my university, gave me an offer I couldn't refuse. We'll fly you over. You've got a job. You get a car. You know, so... Really? I didn't get that deal. I was just a teenager. They didn't know what I was going to do. So so, so these recruiters, where where were they from? The State Department or or, immigration? No, no, no. At the time, at the time, America was really struggling with physios. There just weren't enough. And so recruiters from companies that, staffing companies, recruited outside. um, Australia was a big place that they recruited from, I think, New Zealand as well. England. England was another place. And we didn't have to go through a, a lengthy, what, what's normally called labor certification. Right. Uh, we pretty much got our H-1B visa straight away because we were listed under the State Department, if that's the department that does it, as a needed profession. So we were yep. automatically told, yep, they're okay. So See, I can't That's what immigration is for, and, though. Uh, for those that don't know, immigration is supposed to be to help Americans. Immigration is to help the United States. That's why we bring people here, not to help them. Uh, not that that's a bad thing helping it, them, but it's not, it's not the purpose of immigration. Anyway, just to get that clear. Yes, and, and so we were needed. So, so the mm-hmm. American hospitals were, were suffering. The outpatient departments were suffering because they did not have enough therapists to treat mm. all the patients. So that's what I did. Came over and filled a need that was required over here. Mm-hmm. And I stayed. <laughs> Much to my mum's um, heartache, I think. She, <laughs> wasn't, she wasn't planning, and I don't think I was. It was really just supposed to be a 12-month stint. But every time, like at the end of the year, the vacation, I really wanted to go home. So I spent my vacation time going home. And then I realized I wasn't seeing anything of America. Like I was literally just getting up, but coming home. And yeah. so I went, well, I'm going to be more of America. Well, and then you build up your vacation days and you go home. So that sort of became my little cycle. And then I just realized, I think I'm in America to stay. So yeah. Um, yeah. that's much what happened there. Well, I, I stayed. I could have gone back to Canada or gone back to Australia. You know, I had family in Australia. I could have emigrated back as an adult. Well, I could have gone back to Canada, you know, but I stayed here. Yes. Uh, so now getting back to my story and Probably yes. why I 
Mm. Um, I, I was wondering I where we were going. <laughs> I was wondering how this fit in. Therapist. Yeah. Is that sorry? That's, I was wondering how this fit in because um, you know so far it's a really great story. Yeah, it's like, I know yeah. I know there's another side to this, and so this well, is why. Australia's a lovely country. It's, it's not a country you leave. In Los Angeles, the Australians that you tend to run into for the most part here are you know actors. They want to come here and act, and for the most part, at least from my experience, quite a few Australians that come here and stay, uh-huh. there's usually something going on at home. Right, because you don't usually want to leave Australia. And for me personally, I can say that was my situation, that there was just too much. There was just too much had happened. So let me now talk about that aspect of my life. Mm -hmm. So my dad, my my last name, Rosterola, is even though I'm married, it's my maiden name. I didn't want to change my name. It was just too difficult. So my dad, I'm half Italian. Dad immigrated Mm -hmm. to Australia from Italy. And then mm-hmm. on my mum's side, it's pretty much English, Irish, Scottish. Oh, do we have a lot in common? I got to separate there because yeah. my father has a Greek family. It's exactly the same thing. You know, Greek family went to some went to the United States. Some uh, my grandfather yeah. went uh, back to Greece to take care of his grandfather. Couldn't get back in the United mm-hmm. States because the immigration had changed. Went to Australia, met my grandmother, and so so my father's side is, is Australian. On the Greek side, and Greeks and Italians, we're, we're like you know brothers and sisters. So we might as well be you know cousins. Um, yeah. But uh, and my, my my mother's English Canadian, so it's the same thing. So this is this is fascinating, huh? I'm oh, sorry. Okay. Yeah. That's okay. That's all right. So when I was thirteen, my dad died by suicide, Ooh. and that sorry. was definitely the first. So, so there were five kids. I was the baby of five, mm-hmm. and that was at a time. Look, lots lots have changed. Lot. Let me say that again. A lot has changed more about mental health and a mm-hmm. lot more about stigmatized suicide but back when I was a kid it was sort of like ooh and it you just felt like there was something desperately wrong that suicide had happened in your family oh, where'd you go you got quiet on me for a second are you still there and I wasn't oh, now you're back. sure yeah, what you just I was for a going to oh yes yeah. Yeah. You just cut out for a second, so we, we missed something. I don't want to miss the oh, story. Oh, I cut out. Yeah. That's okay. I so, thought you, you had something you wanted to add. No, 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 no. I, I, I interrupt constantly because my, my, I'm ADHD beyond belief. So I just, whatever comes into my head, <laughs> you know. Um, but okay. uh, but, back to, but I don't want to miss any part of your father's story. So 13 is yeah, not a good age for this. Not that there is a good age, but this no. is, that's a formative year. You know, so, yes, you know. definitely. Definitely. And uh-huh. I just... Remember, then I was an angry child, an angry teen. I, um, at the time, I didn't necessarily know why. I don't think I didn't respond to my dad's death for quite a few days. I mean, I really just mum told me, and I don't really know what I did. I just, I, I do remember that. Mum had said to me, sit down, you know, I've got some news, and I did the whole, you know, I'm not going to sit down. That's, you know, that means bad news. Oh, sit down, I've got some bad news. Yeah. And as soon as she told me, I, I, my legs just literally did collapse from under me, and I fell onto a chair. And all I remember thinking was, I think I was just in denial, because I just got annoyed at myself 
for being so cliche with this silly reaction to collapsing. And I think that was a protective mechanism. You know, I, I went into this mode of thinking about something completely different to what I was just told. And it really wasn't until in Australia we don't have open casket funerals, which tend to be popular in America, but we don't for, for friends and family. And I did not want to do that. I did not want to go up and do the viewing. But again, when you're a kid, everyone else is doing it. You feel obligated. And I remember that was really traumatic. I kind of wish I hadn't have done that. All these little things that add to the the trauma because that's that's an image that still stays in my mind. Like it's still very clear. I've seen my dad there and... And it was after that event that mum came up to me and she said, you know, you were, and that's when I broke down. And yeah. just hearing that, just, but that took a few days for that to kind of sink in. And then, yeah, look, my poor mum, mum had five kids between the ages of 13 and 18 that she was a single mum to. And she did an amazing job. I'm very grateful that I was in Australia that this happened. Because we did have a decent... I, I didn't feel... I mean, schools... I don't, I don't think schools cost any money from what I remember. We went to Catholic schools. So I don't think... I think the system was literally if you couldn't pay, you didn't have to. Like, there was all these different programs. So I didn't necessarily feel poor, if that made sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, I think about when I... Think about being an adult now and trying to exist. Like, how did my mum do it? How did she do it? She, she had to. She That's how she did it. She, she had to. That doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. And um, and so on that side, I always still felt incredibly loved with mum, who um, she passed away in the middle of COVID, which was devastating oh, for I'm me. Sorry. But she's yeah. the strongest woman because. She not only had to survive by suicide of my dad, but two other children. So it's just devastating. So I've also lost two of my brothers to suicide. So my brother Martin, he was 24. And then my other brother Paul, um, he was, how old was Paul? He probably was 50 if I remember, no, 45, 45 when he passed away. So um, it's just been, it, it's been very devastating, that's for sure. And I don't know, do you have any questions? I sort of lost my train of Millions. Thought. No, I'm just, I'm purposely letting you tell your story because I always, yeah. I always have questions. But the, the big question is why? You know, and so, so you have you have two sisters or three sisters or no, sisters and brothers. No, I, I have. I've got my oldest brother. I have an older brother and then an older sister, and then there's me. So it was my middle brother Martin who first um, died by suicide, and then my second oldest brother Paul. Later well, on. the first one was your father. Or for the father's the first and one. And the first one was sister. my father. And the statistics huh. will say, I think it's in the Journal of Psychology. I'm not sure I did some research on this. The statistics say that anyone, any family that has a death by suicide, your 
chances of another death by suicide in your family doubles. So <laughs> it's not wrong for my well, family, that's for sure. Is this something that you talk about in the book? I mean, I don't want to give away your whole book, but I, I, my obvious question is, is why it was the men, you know, your father, two brothers. Um, yeah, circumstance, yeah, yeah. you know, I'm a strong men's rights guy, so I immediately look to what's going on with the guys, because I know guys are persecuted, right. you know, in this country now, you've got toxic masculinity, you've got boys raised on Ritalin and drugs, and they're told that, mm-hmm. especially the, 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 the white uh, young men are told that they're basically the, the being on society and they're the oppressors and all kinds of other stuff. No wonder they're playing video games and ducking out of society. So what was going on at the time? Let's start with your father. So about what year, where are we talking about? What kind? What time period? I'm trying to figure out like what was going on in history and what was going We're talking 84. We're talking 84, okay. so definitely a, a time period when you did not talk about mental health. Um, my, no, but again, it wasn't a bad time. There wasn't a depression. There wasn't a like a, a worldwide pandemic or famine or, or things. Oh, I mean, 84, no. that was the Reagan years, or was there? Yeah. No, no, no. So in that, in that regard, no. It was uh, my dad was a builder. And he was okay. an amazing builder. Um, he was what we call a master craftsman. You know, he really, Italian, of course, he really just made sure that quality came first. And he was diagnosed with a neurological condition that was not going to get better. Okay. Um, and it was definitely, mum explained it to me, and it's just so heartbreaking. It was definitely delivered by the neurologist in a very callous way, a very, very callous hmm. way. It's just basically, mum basically said she just saw my dad collapse. Like he's, he's the, the proud man that my dad was, she right. said he literally just shrunk in his chair. That's the image that she said because the neurologist said, hand over your keys to your wife, you're not to drive anymore. You know, you can, because the, the fear was that if he was driving and he had an accident, he's not to kill anyone else. But apparently my mum said that the, the literal words were, you can kill yourself if you want, but you're not to kill anyone else. And that was the kind of bedside manner. Oh, doctors wow. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I know. I mean, Isn't that there's, there's malpractice Isn't that of medical ethics. Awful. Yeah. yeah. Well, and that was, I, I just can't imagine how, that just ruined my dad. And so to know that he couldn't be a builder anymore, just to, I just think that his just entire world was taken away. And of course, now again, that was the era where it's, doctors wouldn't deliver news like that anymore. One would hope they don't. But at least they would also be like, here's, here's help groups. And you know what I mean? Like, his counsellors, there's a team now. There's always, in the medical world now, whenever diagnosis is a given, there's usually teams of people that you can talk to. But it, back then it was very just, here's the news. And that wasn't that long ago. I mean, I was 24 then. That's when I drove from Boston to uh, San Francisco to start a new life for myself. Right. So I just, yeah. I just left. You know, I just, you know, and so for me it was a time of great adventure. Um, and I remember the world being a pretty fun place. I mean, in the eighties, we had hair metal, we had a uh, good economy. This is in the United States. You know, uh, I'm not sure the situation in Australia, but here's, if, if, no, if I were a doctor. Was, it was good. I, I look, I remember having a bank account and I, in Australia okay. and it was called yeah. a Christmas club account and you put money in and you've got to guarantee 10% at the end of the year. 
So if I had $1,000 with now and I got $100 yeah. at the end of the year, where can you get a 10% return by just putting your money in the bank? Uh, the Silicon amazing. Valley Bank of, uh, <laughs> of, of South San Francisco is about the only place I know. But here's what I'm thinking. Sitting there, what a doctor I think should have done. So I, I think about that too because, you know, I'm, I'm always of the belief if, if it can happen to somebody else, it can happen to me. You know, if I went blind and I never was able to fly an airplane again, what would I do? Well, I'd play guitar all day. Uh, if I couldn't do the radio show, you know, I'd be a writer, you know, so I always have a plan B. And so that's just the basic survival instinct that you do when things keep being taken away from you as they were throughout my entire childhood and young adulthood, um, including careers, college education, which I managed to get, but not the way I wanted and a bunch of other stuff. So I understand things being taken away. Um, but I guess I deal with things very differently. This is why I want to know how your father dealt with it. Did he ever consider consulting? Uh, in the in the business or becoming a uh, maybe a union leader or something that didn't require the motor skills okay. but did this did this illness affect his, his brain at all or was it just motor skills yeah um, both it, okay it so that wasn't both. an option Definitely then motor skills. yeah no no so it would have um, affected him but, regardless of the profession then yes yes okay. definitely definitely all right. Okay. So I just, but again, like I said, I think it was more, he's from a different era because again, okay. he wasn't, I get it. We, we probably in our era would have handled it differently, but he was, I think at the time, 54 when that news was delivered to him. So again, from a very right. different era. Yep. So, yep. you know, I guess, and, and maybe I just, I, I, that's the part I don't know. Like I wasn't in my dad's brain. I, you know, we didn't talk about it. There wasn't this opportunity. It was all stuff I sort of found out after the fact, if that made sense. So you never so, knew that you were his favorite. I mean, there's probably a lot of things he didn't tell you. No, and that, that's a huge source not. of regret, I would think. Yeah, okay. Of course not, you know. I didn't, I didn't, didn't know that. But I guess it's sort of obvious, I guess, the baby daughter I, I definitely knew, okay, this no, is... No, you could have been a horrible person. <laughs> you you don't my, know. My brother and I do yeah. laugh about it, is yeah. John, my oldest brother, was basically told, like, any time I did anything naughty, it was his fault. John would get in trouble for it. Oh, that, that, was, that was my... I was the, the oldest brother. The rationale yeah. was he should have been looking out for me, right? And so I, I kind of knew that as a little little kid, and sometimes I deliberately do naughty things, oh, knowing course. that my oldest brother would get in trouble. So, um, yeah, that was a bit sneaky of me. Yeah, believe me, I know that attitude. Yeah, I had a brother hit me with a cast when he broke his arm, and it was my fault. (laughs) Not that I broke his arm, but just that he hit me with it. It's like, it hurts. Casts hurt, you know, but that's another story. But, yeah, so family dynamics. So, go ahead. One thing I can say about my dad, you know, Mm -hmm. he was a a disciplinarian. He believed in old-school Mm-hmm. Old school discipline. Um, my brothers did get hit with the belt if they were naughty, and mm-hmm. he never. There was no corporal punishment for the girls, but still, he was sort of boisterous and and loud, and he would get angry. And I do remember as a little kid, mm-hmm. you know. But you grow up in that environment. You grow up in this fiery kind of Italian environment. Um, but looking back, you're like, yeah, okay, that's probably a little bit dysfunctional. And then the other <laughs> thing Dad did do, which you know, isn't he did take my brothers? I, I remember as a little kid, I must have just I couldn't have been more than two. You know, like the memories. You know how memories are 
are vague, but I know for the fact that, that my brothers were only like five and six and they would be screaming and crying because dad would be dragging them off to the job site. They would work at, at a young age because that's what he did as a kid. He, as a kid, he was in where, wherever he was in Italy, he was helping out on the farm. Right. But walk, and that was, you know, what he he thought was normal and okay for him, but my brothers didn't like going. Now, ironically, my oldest brother became a builder as well. So in that regard, huh. um, I think my oldest brother didn't mind it as much as my second oldest brother. I don't think he liked it being out on the job site. Um, he had asthma, so I'm sure the dust is for him, and, and he definitely struggled a lot in that regard. So, you know, there were certain things about my dad that kept a bit of a distance between us yeah. kids. Oh, I understand him. that. I had uh, I got dragged to you know, job sites and markets and all the places yeah. where, you know, that he spoke Greek to all his friends, and I didn't understand a word of it because he didn't teach me. Yeah, I, oh, I, I, that was the Italian. Yeah, the, the Italian. I'm not sure about you. How was your dad? English was it? Oh, it's perfect. Solid, or was it quite still broken? No, English was was I think his oh. first language. He, he actually had to go to Greek school in Greek, oh. uh, but they spoke English at okay. home. No, that's not true. No, they spoke Greek at home, uh, but he went to Greek school yeah. and English school, so he was fluent in both. Okay, now, my dad, me. my dad's English was still quite broken. Um, oh, he spent, okay. yeah, it, it really was. So, look, honestly, even as a kid, sometimes I had a tough time understanding him because Do you speak English Italian. Wasn't. I, we did not speak Italian. It, it, that was, we rejected it. I think he tried to teach us, but we didn't want to get teased because as it was, we were already, as kids that were half-breds, we were called wogs. So we were we were teased. So we yeah. tried to distance ourselves from, from the culture. And then, of course, as you get older, you're like, damn it. I had this opportunity to learn Italian. I, I could have been oh, yeah. immersed oh, yeah. in Italian. I, about Greek. I had no objections to Greek, to learning Greek. I just didn't, you know, but we just, we just never invested the time in it. Let's, uh, let's talk about your brothers um, because I understand your father. Uh, and it, I know generation because I've seen that generation. You know, I've, my, my parents and my grandparents, uh, very different. Yeah. One upper crust, English, Canadian, you know, wealthy families. And uh, on the other side, uh, Middle, lower middle class, hardworking, blue collar, um, Greek immigrant families to Australia. So totally different families. Kind of like Annie Hall, if you ever see that episode between the Jewish family of Woody Allen and uh, and Diane Keaton's, you know, waspy rich folks. It's it's kind of that contrast. So I grew up in a, in a split culture. So I understand that. But what about your brothers? What's um, what happened in their lives? So, yeah. So Martin had diagnosis of schizophrenia. And okay. when that diagnosis came through, the doctor did say that he felt it was a delayed onset to um, the trauma of my dad's death. I don't okay. know okay. a lot about schizophrenia, but again, the, the minimal research I've done is that there's potential for predisposition, but it might not come out. But if you do have a traumatic event, that can bring it out if you do have a predisposition to it. So that's so how that manifests. What, what would he do? Oh, how did you see gosh. It? Yeah, he, um, he would just, let me think. I've got it. I think I've blocked a lot of that out, but okay. 
You don't have to talk about. I, any, you yeah. don't have to answer any question I ask. Just, just let no, you know. No, it's fine. It's if, fine. If, I just but, don't want uh, too much quiet dead air because I know on radio you don't want dead air. But I, I did have to stop and no, you stop can and think. think. Now, I can always take a minute I, break and come back. You know, I do that occasionally. No, so it's, it's okay. <laughs> that's okay. No, one thing yeah. I do remember is uh-huh. he would write me letters. I, I was in America, uh-huh. and he would write me a letter, and and then one letter came, and it did not make sense. It huh. really didn't make sense. And I called mum and I said, mum, how's Martin doing? And she said, oh, he's okay. And I said, are you, are you sure? Well, lo and behold, the next day I get a call that Martin's back in, in hospital because he had another whatever he would do. I think, I, I guess that's the thing. I think with Martin was definitely my first I've got to get out of here kind of thing, if that makes sense. So I didn't necessarily have to leave home to go to university. Sydney University was an easy drive for me to go to, but I, let, uh-huh. I, I went to you know, a house with some students because right. for me that was my first escape because I just didn't want to be around there. But I think he would get verbally abusive, especially to my mum. He would fight a lot with my oldest brother definitely fight a lot with him and he would just have delusions. Over, over anything in particular or just just to, just to fight? Um, I'm not exactly sure what they would fight over to be honest. Okay. I, I don't know. I think because John was the oldest I'm sure. I don't know. Yeah, I, that I honestly don't know. That he would... Okay. He would then go off on, I guess, what we call walkabout. We'd go missing for days, for days. I mean, mum said that there was one time she got a call, and I'm not sure where he was. I think up in Newcastle or Gosford, which is about, a, at the time, a a two-and-a-half to three-hour drive north of Sydney. Mm -hmm. And the police called mum to say they'd found him. And mum couldn't get up there for whatever reason, but they were... They were lovely, like they paid to have him get back on the train and come back down and mum met him at wow. the train station. I know, like it was just all these crazy things where he'd just go missing for days. There was a time that I was driving with Martin in the car. So I was driving and this was the most eye-opening thing for me. I, I, this is the part where I remember the most. He was talking and then he just stopped making sense. And I didn't, huh. I just sort of looked at him and then he stopped and he looked at me and he said, what I said just then, did it make sense? And I said, no, actually it didn't. And I said, were you aware of it? And he sort of just sat there a bit and he goes, yeah. And I said, are you always aware? And he goes, not always. He said, but just then I was. And that's when I just thought, gosh, you know, the physical disabilities, we can see them. You know, someone's mm-hmm. missing a leg or they're, they're in a wheelchair. You can kind of see. And I think it's always harder to comprehend mental disabilities. You kind of just want to tell someone, why can't they think normally? You know, like, what's so hard about... It's not that easy. Yeah. To see him go through that was the first time where it hit home for me that, wow, when the mind just wants to do, where the connections just aren't, connecting well the short circuiting is what it sounds like he'll be there one minute and then and then it's gone Mm -hmm. so whatever the connections are now was this a physical disease a hormone or a chemical thing was it it a drug thing all of the above what do you think 
we don't know. I, I, I don't know. There's my oldest brother, had taken some drugs that potentially caused the schizophrenia, but but we don't know whether okay. it was just a, a natural thing, like what the doctors said. You know, was it just that because if schizophrenia happens in in males, and apparently males are more prone to it, it's between usually the ages of twenty to twenty four. I think tend to be the ages where if it's going to happen, it more likely presents itself. Is it because uh, that's an age where you're more likely to dabble in drugs? I, that much I don't know. Well, it's, it's um, an age where you're telling, taking more chances. I, you know, with me, I get creative. Yeah. I went to Europe. I went to Europe for three months and bummed around and and, and explored everywhere and crossed the Berlin Wall and mm-hmm. had great adventures and you know almost had an international incident coming back late from you know for curfew. I mean, but I do that just because I'm me. <laughs> you know, so, and I was 22, yeah. so I was right in right in that age group. Of, of, you know, the stupid time in, in guys' lives. Um, I think men have a different brain connection. Women have more connections between the two hemispheres, the brains, and that helps in communication. And men, I think, have more developed hemispheres individually, which helps with, uh, you know, things like math, science, uh, focusing on projects, you know, that kind of stuff. So we're, we're totally almost like a different species, men and women, uh, which is why it's fascinating having a lot of women on the show so we can talk about this. Uh, kind of, yeah, but I, but I'm unusual in the fact that I'm I'm really verbal, getting really communicative, uh, and so this is uh, I, I I sometimes wonder if I don't have like a um, you know a male female brain up there, you know, doing doing both at once. Uh, it's kind of interesting, but the lack of communication that some guys have, uh, I think, can be, or in this case, possibly was, you know, a contributing factor. He couldn't yeah, say what was happening. Exactly. And then the other thing that happened is he just got drugged up. I think the drug was called Haldol. I'm not sure. But I do remember talking to Martin about that. And he said it didn't didn't stop the thoughts. All it did was stop his ability to act on his thoughts and it just slowed him down. And honestly, I would look at him and his eyes looked dead. That's all Mm -hmm. I could explain. He just lost Mm -hmm. his life. And I just Mm -hmm. would think... That can't be fun. He must be so miserable. He must be so miserable. And then then thinking about the fact that he's aware, that he's realizing mm-hmm. that it's not getting better, it's only getting worse. And then it, the verbal abuse towards mum became physical abuse. And I Uh-oh. do remember that's when I started to get scared. I was in I was in America and my oldest brother told me that he'd found my dad's shotgun in my brother's room and that's honestly I got chills because I was terrified that the call I would get would be Martin's dead and so's your mom or, or so's your family like right. that's literally what I thought was going to happen and so the, the weird thing was and I know this is awful but I've said it to other people before and I don't mind saying this out loud in case anyone else is struggling with guilt from this and to hear that someone else says this when I got the call that Martin had passed away my first feeling was relief mm-hmm. purely because I was terrified for my mum's life I was absolutely terrified for her life so because that was my next question. I, I wanted to know, did anyone else? And when I was told, no, mum's fine, I felt 
intense relief and then the gush of sadness came through because you start to think about, you know, I go, you go look at old photos and you look at this little boy and he just looked, you know, so happy and so much promise. And to, to have a life cut short at 24, it, that's when you start to get really sad and go, gosh, that's just awful. But I firmly believe that he was just in pain and I, he needed, I don't know. So in his situation, I just know that it, it clearly was getting worse and worse and worse for him. And the doctors, whatever drugs they had, it just wasn't helping for him because his behavior was just getting worse and worse. I don't think it helped anybody. I think drugs are the worst thing you can do. I remember when I was miserably depressed, you know, a doctor said, well, let's try all these antidepressants. He was so enthusiastic Mm -hmm. about it. And if this one doesn't work, we'll try this one. Um, I think I remember taking one of something, just one. Uh, and was miserably sick. I said, that's it. I'm not doing this. I don't, I don't care if it's going to, yeah. physically I've got a bad reaction. So that was my first clue. My body, you know, I, I listened to it. Second thing was I didn't want to take them anyway. So I never did. Uh, I just got it through it. And because of that, it came out the other side two years later. But I think the drugs, the antidepressants are the worst possible thing anybody can do for depression. Because this is my interpretation. And I remember reading this somewhere and it makes sense that depression is your body's way of stopping you and saying, you have some things to deal with. And we're not going to let you go forward. We, your body, are not going to let you go forward until you deal with these things. And for me, when I was depressed, I dealt with them over two years, recovered, and here I am at Action Radio, you know, changing the world, literally. (laughs) Uh, But this would not have happened without that struggle. And so in many ways, I think for a lot of us, it's necessary. I'm sure you've had a struggle. You know, other folks have had struggles, some more than others. But it's it's not a bad thing to struggle. It's, it's you know, the pain that you're feeling is for a reason. And if you understand that it's there for a reason, then it's a lot easier to deal with. And you just work your way through. You know it's going to get better. You don't know when, but you. But every day you go, okay, I feel a little better. This makes sense. You start. You start putting the pieces of your life, the the life puzzle together. And once the puzzle is, you know, clear enough, then you can then you can move forward and get out of it. But I think if you're drugged, you never get to put the pieces together. They're always just separate out there, just things that you never grasp onto. And because nothing ever improves, it becomes progressively more hopeless. That's just my amateur interpretation of it. But I don't. To recommend, and I'm not a doctor, but I don't think anybody should ever take antidepressants. I think they're dangerous, uh, and they, they, they do not help. They, they band-aid, they make things worse, they medicate people, and they take away their ability to act on problems. They just make them slower, like you say. Yeah, well, again, I just I definitely wouldn't categorize what Martin was going through as depression. I don't... No, I was just talking about myself, but schizophrenia is definitely different, yeah, and... Yeah, yeah okay. but um, I don't disagree that back then. I believe there are much better drugs the, these days. Look, I think we're definitely a pharmaceutical-driven society, and I don't think that's a good thing. But yeah. are there drugs that are good? Absolutely. But usually, you know, in the short term, I've just been, I think, with the stress of the pandemic and with my mum passing away in the middle of the pandemic and having to go to Australia and being stuck in the worst lockdown ever, through all of that, I ended up with an autoimmune disorder. And most autoimmune stress is the biggest thing. But if it wasn't for the drug that they gave me, I'm I'm now getting lower and lower and lower on the drug. I think Mm -hmm. yay for that drug and yay for antibiotics when I get sick. But um, I think in general, doctors do just throw drugs at problems. I don't disagree with that um, okay. a lot. 
that I've never had depression that's required medication. I've had friends that have, and they've said it's helped them. So I guess, huh. look, honestly, I think the tough thing is it's we're, we're such complicated species, and we've all got a different chemistry. I mean, how, how do you explain how some people can drink hard? I've got a girlfriend who can just drink and does not get drunk. Give me a glass of wine, and there you go. I can't really have anything else. Our bodies metabolize things differently, and we've all got a different chemical makeup to a certain extent. It's a tough thing. She wanted to liver tested. Like the, the, the alcohol's still doing damage, but she's not feeling it. That's that's kind of weird. That's like not yeah, feeling you pain, know, you know, until your arm's broken. Yeah. And you go, oh, my arm's broken. It doesn't hurt, but you know, your arm's still broken. It is, yeah, yeah. It's it, it's an interesting thing, but um, yeah. I mean, get, getting back to so with Martin, yeah. it was it just a, to me, it's just a very sad story. It just is. It's just awful and sad. Well, there are no happy stories um, here I mean, in between your father and no, your brother. No, so your poor listeners early this morning, they're waking up to listen That's to... Okay. They're used to, to it. These, they're used to conflict. Have, you know, it's not all happy yeah, talk here. Sure, we're, sure. We're, not, we're not the, the Joy Joy radio show here. You know? yeah. um, I want to talk about Paul because we haven't talked about him, and I want to and talk about your book. And so... Yeah, uh, so Paul... Um, look, all my family, we're all smarty pants. And, you know, we're very intelligent people. And I can say that because, um, you know, I'm, I'm a STEM girl. I was a physics, chemistry, science girl. Right. Um, got really good marks. I loved those subjects. I, I excelled in those subjects. Um, but you're a girl. My brother, <laughs> Sorry, I had to throw that in. What was that? Sorry? I and you're a girl. girl. I know. Okay, you can do that. I that yeah. I'm a girl. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and they were all – they all got – really high marks in their trade. So Martin became uh-huh. a plumber. Paul was a air conditioning mechanic, but he did it for the high-rise buildings, so commercial huh. buildings. Right. And he got to a point in his, um, you know, he loved being out on the field. He was the best uh-huh. at diagnosing, diagnosing what was wrong with these, either the really old machines or you know, just what was the problem. But because he was so good, he was also needed in the office. Um, but, and so I remember Yeah, he wasn't an office guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he wasn't an office guy, no. But um, he would be the guy that was called on if the other guys couldn't figure something out. And so he was, you know, he was that, I guess that was the thing. He wasn't the day-to-day guy going out and fixing. He was the guy that was always there that if, someone had a question, someone needed help, he was the guy that anyone in the, in the company could turn to. And then yeah, he'd the have dirty to go Harry. Off site <laughs> Every and dirty job, we give it to dirty Harry. Yeah. Yeah. So he was, I mean, honestly, he was a victim of a silly practical joke. You know, you go back to boys being boys with what they think is funny. I mean, if I put myself in his shoes, he took his job incredibly seriously. Um, you know, my, with all, all my brothers, all my family, we, we, me, when I was a physical therapist, I, my patients were, I was a patient advocate. My patients were number one. If I couldn't give them the best treatment possible, I would refer them off to where they needed to go. Whereas I've seen therapists that just keep the patients coming in because it's a paycheck. You know, like there, there's a, definitely a degree of ethics that I always brought to my profession and I firmly believe yep. my brother's. Brought a high level of ethics 
um, to what they did. Mm-hmm. And so whatever this was, it was definitely a, um, a, a tense situation because with an air conditioning, you're also dealing with electricity. And when it's in the high-rise commercial buildings, it's a, a very intense electricity. And he was concentrating on the panel and his mates or co-workers, big heavy metal doors, they slammed them. And the noise and the, the jolt of that, brother literally thought he'd had an electric shock. Like it scared him so much, he jumped back. And then they just burst out laughing. And I just, I just think that whole scene traumatized him so much that huh. they just thought it was a funny, funny situation. And here he was trying to fix, being professional, trying to fix right. this this system that was broken that needed to be working in a building with a com- you know, a corporation that needs their air conditioning happening. Well, it's hot in Australia. He, I mean, it's, it's really hot down well, there. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And here's these yahoos just thinking, oh, isn't this the perfect time to play a practical joke? Mm-hmm. So th- that definitely rocked him really, really hard. Um, I know that he had some post-traumatic stress because of that. And then on top of that, from what I remember, there was um, then a lawsuit with the company for that because of the... Again, I was in America when a lot of this was happening, so I'd only get things third-hand. But... All I know is he was never the same. He was never the same after that. And I think, again, it was another one of these situations that he couldn't go back to work. And he loved his job. He loved his job. And he just was a different person. He just, he just changed. He just lost his zest for life. He just went internal. He pulled away from his family. He just... I would come home from America. He really wouldn't want to interact with me. Didn't, you know, just all from the one thing. The, the the actual slamming of the doors, I don't think is the issue. I think it's the betrayal that's the issue. Yes. Oh, of course. Oh, of course. It's it's that. It's it's the betrayal of your your mates. And I think things a lot different. Had they realised, it's like any jokes. I think the people that play practical jokes. It's, it's only a joke when the person you're playing it on laughs and thinks it's funny. But when they don't, the smart thing to do is go, oh, shoot, mate, sorry. And, you know, but not still think it's a funny, the funniest thing that's ever happened and stuff right. like, you know, being told, oh, suck it up. But you can't help the way you respond to something. You, you can't help the way your, your body reacts to what you think happened. But, yeah, yeah but he... I, I think you nailed it. It's the betrayal. It's It's... It's that whole thing of realizing I'm only pulling at straws here. I don't 100% know, but that's you know you've there's, there's a group of people that wouldn't it be funny to make you the butt of a joke? I guess. Well, also it's it's the uh, it's the disrespect. It's the his you know he thought he was occupying a, a place of uh, you know prestige and accomplishment, and that he was well respected yeah. for his knowledge and ability. Yeah. And what he found out mm-hmm. was they didn't give a damn about his knowledge and ability. They just called him so they wouldn't have to do the work. And they're playing a joke on him. Mm-hmm. It, you know, yeah. as everything is more complex than people imagine. But if you the pattern I'm seeing here, 
is that uh, with, uh, with your father and your two brothers, they all had something taken away from them, something that was vital yeah. to them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So your father lost his profession. Your, your, your yeah. brother Martin uh, lost his intellectual uh, capacity, his brain. Um, Paul mm-hmm. lost his self-respect, his self-esteem, the things that, uh, that were important to him, his ability. You know, that's what, and and like, these things are vital, uh, whereas you mm-hmm. never want to have one thing be your whole reason for living. Your whole, I guess, raison d'etre, the French expression. What is, what is your reason to be? You know? And so if your reason to be is your profession and you lose your profession, you have no reason to be. So you have to be more complex. Now, I think that's why more men commit suicide, quite honestly, because their reason to be is a lot of times external. That they don't think of themselves as a good person first and then do really cool things. I, I, action radio is a really cool thing, but I am not action radio. If I could not do it, if this were taken away, I would still go on and do other stuff. I'd probably, like I said, I'd probably be a writer or something else. It would not stop me from being an advocate, you know, which is in my basic nature. But you know, I, I think you almost have to have, always have a plan B. What if? You know, and if you lose the thing that is the most important, that is your reason for existence, See, I think women have a lot more reason for existence, you know, kids, family, uh, the job is part of it, but you know, a job is more uh, of an economic necessity uh, rather than a spiritual, you know, dependency. I think a lot of guys look at work very differently. How am I doing? Yes. And then the other okay. thing that he had is he had one really close friend. He had a, a best friend. They had been, grew up since teenagers. You know, uh-huh. so, um, and I think that's what the, the biggest tragedy was, is his friend who was who was sick, um, he died, huh. and basically it was the next day that Paul wow. took his life. So, yeah, and I, he I didn't think, talk to someone, he didn't reach out and, and, and talk about no, his friend. and, and that becomes, yeah, that, that becomes sort of the whole impetus almost for my book, right? Okay. That, that, that becomes the big theme. And the reason I ended up writing the book is I was back mm-hmm. in Australia in, around November 2017. I uh-huh. just released my first book. of um, I'd written Cecilia, The Last Coralite. Cecilia, The Last Coralite was book one of my YA fantasy, my young adult fantasy series. So I just finished that book and I was in Australia doing a little book signing and uh-huh. my friend came up to me and she told me a really heartbreaking story about how her ex had died by suicide two years earlier and she was left with three children. Like she almost was my mum, almost was my mum, except mum had five children and my friend right. had three children. But again, with those formative ages of I think of maybe 11, I think they were 11, 15 and 20. And she said to me, she's like, you know, I can cope with all of it it's the she goes i can handle it said, but what i can't handle is when my girls say look at me and go mommy why did daddy do it because that's when i break down because i don't know how to have that conversation i don't know what to say and so for me i just went oh my gosh then it's this whole thing sort of not even knowing how to talk about this subject not even knowing mm-hmm. how to I had a 15-hour flight home from Sydney to to LA, and I just kept thinking about that. And I'm like, oh my gosh, if anyone can 
talk about this. I, I kind of have to. It's like this story told me you have to write me. I wasn't planning. Oh, so uh, I, I understand that. <laughs> this is God talking to you. Right? This is, this is I, don't, I don't know uh, uh, how, how your connection is, but uh, I mean, Action Radio, I always say, is driven by two things, God and ADHD. And I'm, not, you know, and I'm not sure which is predominant at any one particular time. Wendy hates it when I say it's God's predominant, Greg. Okay, fine, Wendy. Thank you. Uh, she was just on. Um, but this is, this, is, this is your purpose. This is your reason. This is what you can do that no one else can do like you can do it. And so despite being a physical therapist and, and all the other things you do, this is, this is what you're, you're supposed to do is to have that conversation so people, you know, have that conversation in the book so people can have that conversation for real. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I guess I realized I sort of skipped the part about how I jumped from being a physiotherapist to writing books. <laughs> well, you can, well, I, we can run a little overtime if you want to. I've got time. I actually have two. No, uh, I have the next hour free also. I, I don't know how much time you have. I be confused that I did make a transition um, okay. out, of, well, out of physiotherapy. Let's to writing hear it. Books. How did you um, do that? Oh, how did I do that? Look, I'd always loved writing. Um, okay. I just didn't feel that I should be a writer because Why? I was so good at well, I was so good at the physics, math, and chemistry, and I uh-huh. did struggle a bit in you could English. About that. In that, my grammar, oh. my my grammar and, and spelling wasn't the best. So I I just assumed, oh, if you don't have really, if you don't have a great grasp on grammar, you certainly shouldn't be a writer. That was my little brain. Yet I always got really great marks in the creative writing portion of any of the tests that we did. Yep, been there. <laughs> you know, A for ideas, C for structure. <laughs> That's why I got B's on all my papers. Yep, I know, I know exactly sort of stuff, what you're talking right? about. Oh, yeah. yeah, been there. Exactly. Yep. And, uh-huh. But the teacher, it's not like the teachers would say to me, Sandra, you need to cultivate your creativity. What was the point of that? I was the little Miss Physics girl. Why, why would they be do positive. that? That'd be positive. Just encourage that <laughs> part of it. Why would they tell you so, something positive? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So it really took, it really took me coming to America Mm-hmm. And just being brave enough to start exploring it and going, well, you know, even though I'm working, I, well, I'm in Los Angeles, down the road is UCLA. So I just started taking classes down there just to explore. And mm-hmm. I, one of the classes, the instructor said something that pretty much changed my point of view about the whole thing. He said, you know, a lot of, a lot of good writers are also really good at math or a lot of people who are really good at math are great writers because they understand structure and storytelling and stuff oh, I like suck that. at math. And That's probably why, except geometry. That, oh, I can do that because so yeah, of pictures. structure and stuff, yes. Yeah, and yeah. that really was a turning point for me because I went, oh, huh. you don't have to have a, a, this differentiation between, oh, science, people can't write. You know what I mean? No, this is fascinating because you can learn grammar. Yeah. I did. I I, I, got, I I wrote a book and I, I've written countless articles and I I've, I really learned to write after college. After I had my education, I got a grammar book and actually taught myself grammar. <laughs> oh, that's how you're supposed to do it. You know, of course, you can learn anything. And guess what? Yeah. Guess what? And this is the other thing that, that reading about um, Stephen King's book. The other thing is, guess what? You don't have to be an expert at it. Because no. you hire other people. That's what your editor and your proofreader help you with. And so now I don't – look, I do it the best I can, and now there's definitely a lot of softwares out there that will catch yeah. passive sentences. Grammar software. And catch it tells me. Exactly. And <laughs> yeah. so My spelling still sucks. But, <laughs> it's so funny. Yeah, I certainly want to let anyone else out there that's listening that thinks, oh, I want to write too. Don't let silly things like grammar where things – 
you can't necessarily hire someone to be creative for you unless of course you're going to be doing that whole ghost hiring a ghostwriter. But guess what? You can hire someone to help you figure out sentence structure and you can hire someone to help you figure out yep. your grammar. That's kind exactly. of great. If you just come up and got this amazing story, just write that amazing story down and there will be other people that can help you craft it into mm-hmm. you know, something that's easier for the reader to read. So that's yes. So that's when I decided, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna write. But I started with screenplays because being in Los Angeles, that seemed like the medium to do. And I fell into books by accident because my husband wanted, who's a, my husband's a composer, and he wanted to write. Oh, that's ballet. interesting. And, yeah, I see why you two got together. That makes sense. You got two creative uh, minds here. Very interesting. Yes. <laughs> and a ballet needs a ballet story. And I said, well, fine, I'll be your librettist. And knowing that a ballet story really only needs about eight to 15 pages. And every time I would write the story, he'd read the pages and go, yep, that's great, keep writing. And I'm thinking, but fine, I just kept writing. And I ended up with 90 pages before he turned around and said, yeah, I'm not going to do the ballet anymore, I'm too busy. And I'm left with this 90-page ballet story. And I said, well, what am I supposed to do with this? And he said, write the novel. And I went, huh? And yeah, and that was that was it. I, I bought a whole bunch of books. I did a whole bunch of research about writing novels and I wrote the novel and it went on to win like quite a few awards. I was quite shocked about all that. Um, but if I think about it, it's that little novel that got me to Australia, that got me talking to my friend who I hadn't seen for years who told me that story and I kind of think, as you say that the whole purpose was to really get me to write Making Friends with Monsters. I think that was the journey I was supposed to be on to write this particular book. Because Makes sense to me. Well, well, the other options are taken away from you. You, know, you kind of have to do what you're supposed to do. <laughs> That's how I see it. <laughs> so, um, so with Making Friends with Monsters, I mean, getting back to what you were saying about men, about, you know the suicide with, with men, I chose my point of view character to be a 12-year-old. It's a 12-year-old boy, even though uh-huh. a, a female writer. Other People have asked me that. They're like, well, why, did you, why, why a boy and not a girl? But I guess for me, that's the experience I had. The experience I had was seeing my dad and my two brothers, and that's what felt the most real to me, to, to be able to try and explain all this or to go through... Um, an experience through the point of view of a, a young boy, Sam, who's watching his older brother, Ben, who's 17, you know, start to spiral out of control. His older brother, who used to be this great guy, becomes moody and distant. And this little sensitive 12-year-old just wants to figure out what's happening with his brother. And he sees in his brother what he interprets as monsters, or a monster. And so he sets out to try and learn everything he can about these, these creatures so that he can help his older brother. But in the process, Sam ends up having a really terrible accident that, that um, and I don't want to give too much away because it's sort of a real big plot twist in it, mm-hmm. but yeah, this terrible that. accident brings out Sam's own monster. And so as the reader, you get to, to just experience this Sam go through all these emotions that bring out his monster and, ha- and how he deals with these emotions because 
for me, I don't ever use the word suicide in my book, but the, mm -hmm. the metaphor is if Sam can't figure things out and if Sam can't learn to control his monster or ultimately make friends with his monster, his monster will turn around and swallow him whole, kind of the whole thing. And really, I mean, the, the bottom line of the story is really just learning to know yourself, you know, mm -hmm. learning to accept the fact that, gosh, you know, things happen. We're allowed to have these big emotions that we have. There's nothing wrong with having emotions. No, guess what? Boys can cry. Stop saying boys can't well, cry. Was, can cry. That was the point I was um, just about to make is that yeah. when you criticize for writing about a boy, because we live in an incredibly sexist society now that doesn't value men, doesn't value young men, doesn't value boys. I mean, boys who have energy, no. you know, get Ritalin. Boys that, uh, you know, they get older, they're toxic masculinity. And then they go older still and they're, they're white supremacists. You know, so there's yeah. there's a real problem. There's a man crisis. And what's interesting is the the people that are advocating most for men's rights, including well me, obviously, but uh, women, because they don't listen to the men who advocate for men's rights or for for problems with men or things like that. So there's a huge stigma. So I think it's it's perfectly natural for people in this time period in history to say you should have about a girl. Girls are valuable. Boys are not. That's really the message you're getting. I wonder if you're. I'm, you're, not, uh, I'm not sure whether I was. If I've been criticized, no one's criticized me to my face, if that makes sense. I think mm -hmm. it's more the assumption. I mean, the, it never clicked with me. My main character's name is Sam, and I guess that is a unisex name. You know, females can be called Sam. And I think some readers just, there's an assumption that when you're a female writer, your protagonist will be female. So I think that's Harry the only... about Harry Potter? I know. <laughs> I know, but you notice that, that she didn't um, put her, her name down. Like she goes by her initials, JK. So, you know what I mean? And that the whole reason of that, the whole reason was to not immediately show that the author was a female author. So, oh, I knew she was a female that, author as soon as I knew that Harry Potter did everything good by accident because that's what women think uh, about men. <laughs> it's true. You look, at the, you look at the characters, the women, you look at Harry, Harry Potter is a fabulous metaphor for this because the most intelligent characters are women. The guys are doofuses. The things they do right are by accident. They do brave things because they have to, but they're not necessarily good at it. And, and most of the male characters are flawed. So Harry Potter, is, we, we could do a whole show on Harry Potter, <laughs> which, is, which would be fascinating. But uh, that's how I see it. So I knew she was a. I knew it was written by a woman as, as soon as the first scene opened up. And it was really obvious. To any any guy that looks at guy stuff and women stuff, I think. Oh, okay. That's a that's a new one for me. But yeah, that's right. Well, you're gonna get a lot of that on yeah. the show. I, I don't think like other people. I just don't. Uh, and you know, I have a microphone. I'm not afraid that's to use it. That's always mm -hmm. good. That's always good. But for me, yeah. I definitely, definitely, you know, I, I want everyone to learn from this book that, yeah, my, mm -hmm. my sweet spot, my soft spot is for boys, for young boys. I mm -hmm. wanted a character that was relatable. And yep. I, I, I definitely, because, yeah, I, I just, like, want to hit well, both, tell me about both um, genders. Yeah. But, yeah, if, if boys can read this book and feel relatable to Sam and somehow that can help them, then that would be amazing for me. Oh, I think so too. I think this book's incredibly valuable. That's why I want to have you on, but I want to learn a little bit more without, like I say, giving away everything. So how would you describe the monsters? Uh, I think you have like rules for monsters. You, you post something like that on your Facebook page. Uh, is that something you want to go into or, or want yeah, to save for, for the book? What, 
what Sam, Sam collects all these little facts about monsters, and I think ultimately he collects 26 facts about them. And okay. the, first, the first fact is that, you know, he, he talks about, and this happens early on, where he talks about all the things that, that his older brother Ben's going through. Uh-huh. And, you know, that no one else in the seems to see it because everyone else is just writing it off as, oh, he's just a teenager, which is mm-hmm. what we do, right? If people mm-hmm. go through things, it's, it's always some sort of write-off. And, and teenagers get that a lot. Oh, he's, they're just a teenager. Boys will be boys. No. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's not that, that, that Ben's a teenager. Ben has a monster, and I seem to be the only one that can see it. And so then he writes, his, he starts collecting his little fact. And fact number one is, most fact number one about monsters, most people don't know they exist, you know. And so he just collects all these these facts. And the, um, you know, another one is they, when it comes to age, they don't discriminate. You know, they mm-hmm. live just as happily in rich people as they do in poor people, you know. And so it's he, while he certainly does choose his imagination, by the way, like he's not mm-hmm. physically seeing these monsters. He's just an imaginative little kid. And so he likes to imagine what they would look like and so he does describe them as having these big do, do you know the tasmanian devil from that cartoon taz the tasmanian devil well and, and the real ones too because i spent four years in, in melbourne so <laughs> i wasn't that far oh, from tasmania well, so yeah i know yeah i know both both the uh, yeah both the cartoons he, and the uh, yeah uh-huh monsters probably look most like taz because you know how taz has got this big round body and these little stick thin like legs and arms but this massive mouth Oh, right, yeah, huge. What, uh, With big teeth. That's how yeah. Sam, Sam describes monsters as having these huge mouths in order to turn yeah. to, to swallow you, is right. basically what he says. Interesting. And, um, but the big thing that Sam learns, and I don't think this is giving too much of a spoiler, I think it's fine. Okay. The big thing that Sam learns is that we are our monsters. That's the whole thing, that they're not a separate thing, that they are us. And, in, and he learns that they're not a bad thing either. They're really not bad. And because our monsters are just our emotions, that's all our monsters are. But it's our emotions that we feel that we shouldn't have. And it's this whole thing of always being so critical about ourselves for feeling the way that we feel about something because either we've been told it's wrong to feel that way, we shouldn't feel that way. And Sam realizes, look, you know what? It's okay to be angry. It's okay if something happens and I'm angry. Whereas there are times we're told, why are you angry? You shouldn't be angry about that. And that can be confusing for kids and teens because they're feeling angry on the inside. They literally are. But they're, when they're told you shouldn't be feeling angry, that confuses them a lot. What we've got to try and figure out is why we're feeling angry. And the big thing that Sam figures out is Anger tends to be a very easy default emotion to go through, go through mm-hmm. which I right. definitely found as a kid. I realized that the emotions I was probably feeling that I didn't want to feel was abandonment, um, was probably the big one, and fear, but I didn't want to feel that, and I turned it into anger. And I think a lot of people can relate to that, that it's just such an easy default emotion to go to is, is anger. Um, and so as long as we can listen to ourselves, accept that we're feeling something, don't fight it. I don't think you should fight your emotions. I think 
emotions will have their ebb and flow. So once we come down from our emotion, then we can look back and go, oh, actually, I was probably afraid or I was probably hurt. That's the other one. I think a lot, a lot of the times when we get hurt, like emotional mm-hmm. hurt, we can sort of strike back in anger as well. I think that's a common thing that we, we do. Um, so that's sort of the bottom line of the, the book is to really just understand your emotions and figure out where they're coming from. Well, it's more than understanding. You said making friends with your emotions. Oh, in other yes. words, well, understanding yes. it's yes. it's not a bad thing that you have, you know, when you think uh, or classic one is, oh, I could just kill that person. And you think in your mind, maybe I really could, you know, and then you like, have this, this, this weird fantasy of, of causing a car accident. Well, you didn't really want to do it. You don't actually see them die. But, you know, metaphorically, you know, you, you, you want mm-hmm. some, you know, you sort of, in your devious side, it's the things you don't do. You, you sort of wish them harm. You don't want anything to happen, but it's fun to think about. You know, I, you know I, I, I have those thoughts, too. It's my petty moments, the thing for I really don't mm-hmm. need to do it, but it would be fun to do it anyway. Uh, but I won't do it in real life. I just like to think about it because it's kind of fun. You know, yeah. so we all have that stuff. But then it gets more serious when you think of someone who really does, you know, a boss that exactly. fires you or, or, uh, or a partner that rejects you or, or uh, you know, or, you know, you, divorce. I mean, all these things that happen to people, all these rejections. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got to make friends with rejection. And, and don't take mm-hmm. it personally that you're, you're the bad person. And I think a lot of this, you have to sort out the blame. How much are you actually responsible for? And are you taking on an emotion that was put on you? a situation that's put on you that you didn't cause that you don't need to take credit for or responsibility for. And this is like a perspective that's required for any situation. You know, if somebody, you know, the the worst scenario, uh, somebody close to you commits suicide. And I know you don't say that uh, in the book, but the first thought is, what did I do wrong? Well, there's probably nothing you did wrong. Uh, Then you have to think, what did I do right? Did you do enough right? You know, I mean, I don't know if you deal with this. Do you ever deal with the, the questions that can't be answered? It's like you explained earlier when uh, your friend of yours had uh, uh, had kids. That, you know, you know, why did Daddy do this kind of thing? And what do you? How do you do? You deal with the questions that can't be answered. I, and is that something that I, teenagers I, should know? Well, again, it's it's done in a very general way. There there is okay. a there is a character that does um, suffer a loss by suicide, and this particular character, because again, this is where I don't want to give too much away. Right. Um, does have a realization at the end where again they were they were so upset because again yes blamed themselves mm-hmm. you know why did well, I must have done something wrong I must have done something wrong for my dad oh. to have done that but then yeah. this character after sort of Sam ends up writing an essay and and Sam does the brave a brave thing because he's such a shy little kid he cannot he would never be able to stand up in front of the class and read out an essay. But he ends up doing that, and 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 by doing that, he he sort of talks about these monsters and his own monster, and mm-hmm. and that sort of has a knock-on effect, and and with the with the class bully, and with you know all these other people, and one of them is this this friend who has a realization that yeah, she actually wasn't to blame, she wasn't to blame for what happened. So, oh. but the there isn't really an answer for suicide, but the one thing I do want to when we talk about suicide the old terminology was commit suicide but we've changed it now where we say um, they died by suicide because I think when you think about when someone gets to that point in their life Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. we have such a natural ability to live, right? We have right. a protective mechanism within us to live. <laughs> you, you put your hand on something hot, you immediately withdraw. We have a withdrawal reflex. We have a, a, a reflex to not go near heights and, and look over a cliff. You know, like there's a, there's a reason we pull back. To be able to, to bypass that is really difficult, really, really difficult. So to say that someone committed suicide is sort of like saying, oh, I just chose. I chose to do it. My take and where the current sort of literature is with it, with, with psychologists and, um, and everyone, it's more the person really had no choice. They were at a point in their life that they, it wasn't a choice. They, they don't choose to die. They, they literally had no other choice. And so that's why it's, it's sort of like taking the perspective of someone having cancer. And you don't choose to die when you have cancer. The cancer takes over. And I think that's the part that I, I believe in and that's the part I do want to try and get out there to help destigmatize suicide as well because I think a lot of people think it's easy to say, oh, well, they chose to do that. It's on them. But I, I'm not sure. I, I just I don't see that. I don't see how you bypass your protective mechanism without some severe breakdowns in that protective mechanism. And mm. um, I, I, I do believe that the term death by suicide or died by suicide is more um, akin to really what does happen. And so really the only answer that Sam can come up with, and because there, there isn't an answer, everyone, each individual person has their own individual thing but the bottom line is they actually had no choice hmm. because living because living had gotten to the point where it no no it, they, 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 they couldn't anymore and we will never know we'll ne- until we're what's the saying walked a mile in the shoes of someone that, that is that desperate that, that suicide is the answer yeah, I don't know well, it's, it's a complicated it's a question. One. It's a tough one to give answers to. It really is. Unless it's, it seems like the um, uh, the you know to the, the person that does this, uh, there's they feel there's no other choice. So how we can bring in other choices? How can we offer other choices? You know, as depressed as I was, uh, and I know suicide follows that kind of thing. People think about it. That was never a consideration for me. Um, I'm very very much a survival person i've been through enough so this was just another thing to survive so as i tell people i said you know you you can write the chapters but you can't write the ending you know you know that's that's up to god your your time is whatever your time is Uh, i said but you can change you can make decisions and life decisions that's what you're supposed to do and so for me it it wasn't a question of that but it was always a question of how do i figure this out how do i solve this so for me i always had other choices but i'm I think unique in yes. survival because I had childhood trauma to survive. So it makes sense. Yeah. But yeah, go ahead. And in, so my whole, that, that's the other part. Yes, you are completely right. The second part is, is being able to talk about it. That's right. the thing, you know, mm-hmm. not to suffer in silence, to try and get on top of this before it gets too bad because usually it's something that, I, it, this is a tough word for me to say, cum, cumulative. <laughs> It accumulates over time. Someone doesn't just sort of 
wake no, up. No, you don't wake up and decide to do this out of nowhere. No, that's, yeah, it's that doesn't make process, sense. It's just things happening. Mm. So that's why my hope is I've written this story for, for young adults uh-huh. to, get to, get to get to teens so that the more you can learn to understand your emotions, talk about your emotions, not like what you say, not take on everything, not feel like every time something happens, oh, it must be my fault. I did right. that like that. That's so much pressure that you bring on yourself. Mm-hmm. So yes, absolutely. That that is the whole thing. The whole point of this book is to break down the barrier of silence. Because in my family, there's definitely was a lot of silence. You know, there, there there definitely was, and I know for a fact in a lot of other families, there was silence. Because just from me talking out, I'm getting you see on Facebook, right? We uh-huh. I'm getting a lot of interaction on Instagram um, with people reaching out to me and basically saying the same thing, saying thank yeah. you oh, for yeah. speaking out because they, 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 they felt that they had nothing but silence in their family as well. So well, I the, think... the, the, the curse of silence because people don't want to take responsibility, don't want to deal with it, and if, if they figure they don't deal with it, you know, it'll just go away. Yeah. Uh, two more things I want, I want to cover, yeah. and then uh, I'll probably sure. let you go for this time, but you're always welcome back. I mean, you know, feel free. Uh, this is great. First of all... Um, I'll get to the book signings just in the, or the book in just a second. But in, in aviation, I was a flight instructor and, and hope to teach again uh, at some point or just fly for fun. I haven't quite decided. It depends what happens with action radio. Um, but one of the things we learned in aviation is that uh, an accident or a crash usually happens after seven uh, bad decisions that all have to have to follow in line. It's like a chain of events. They study this risk management, crisis, emergency. They all, all everybody studies this, and that if any one of those chains is broken, then the accident doesn't happen. So if an airliner you know crashes, it's, it's a combination of you know it, maybe the fuel was bad, the weather was bad, you know the pilot uh, was over you know overslept and got sick that day, um, you know they went to a place they shouldn't have been, you know there was terrorist activity, whatever it is. It's like you know seven things that all combine. You know, and if all seven, it, it takes it takes that chain of events to result in a tragedy. And I'm thinking that someone taking their own life, there's a similar chain of events. And not that you ha- you, you can see the warning signs because they might just keep it to themselves. But has anybody ever established like these are the this is the progression that will generally happen before somebody takes their own life? Has that ever been established? That's not research I've come across. Um, well, maybe you can you can do it. Like I don't Maybe. disagree that that wouldn't be the case, but whether or not they've come to say, uh-huh. like what you said in, in the, your world, which I think is fascinating. I, I, I love that. Like I totally agree that there is usually a whole bunch of little dominoes that line up. And if one of those little dominoes just didn't connect, then damn, that event wouldn't have happened. Well, I think, um, I think so we're, all, I we're all near accidents all day long. <laughs> you know, but we all fix that, that one thing, yeah. yeah. So that's probably the case, because guess what? Had, uh-huh. my, had my brother's best friend not died i i still believe paul would be with us right like kind of thing or had this other event not happened and my brother's best friend died he would have had the emotional capacity to deal with his best friend's death but because he'd gone through the other stuff he'd gone through he didn't have the emotional capacity to deal with his best friend's death so absolutely i firmly agree that there were a bunch of little things that line up to go is now the critical tipping, I guess, the tipping point. I read a book once called The Tipping Point. I found that huh, fascinating not familiar. Book. Oh, it's what a was, really, really good book. Into, what's it about? Into this kind of stuff, The Tipping Point. It's, it's all about, um, oh, 
one of the stories they talked about was in, I think it's the 70s in New York, and how New York was just full of crime, like really bad with graffiti everywhere. And they were talking about the tipping point of how to, to stop and, and um, get everything better. And they were trying everything. They were like, well, we're going to try and crack down all the drug dealers and we're going to try and crack down on all the graffiti artists. And you know what it was? You know what I do actually. I, I, I know where you're going the... with this, but I want to let you say it. Yeah. Okay. Well, at least in this book, this book said they stopped fair evaders. That was the tipping point because the people that, that would jump the fence. What was that? Sorry. What was what was it called? Oh, fair evaders. Fair evaders. Oh, I, fair, right. fair evaders. Because what had happened is the regular citizen wouldn't regular citizens are happy to pay fair. They're going right. to pay fair. They, they don't mind. But when they see that no one is going to stop them, they're going to mm-hmm. break that one little rule. They'll right. break that one little rule. And once one little rule is broken, it's easy for the next rule to get broken and then the next rule and then the next rule and then bigger crime comes in. So rather than trying to stop the bigger crime, they had to go all the way back down and they stopped fair evaders first. And once they made sure people paid, that was that one little tipping point that then the next little things could actually start to have effect. But they they couldn't make any impact on the other stuff until they got to this lower level thing that was happening in society in general, that society in general broken down so i just and this this book i just found it so fascinating with all these other little little things about you know what is the tipping point for change or effect to actually happen well let's find a fraction radio because we write citizen legislation here i'm doing something uh, it's brand new we actually have a citizen legislator attached to a radio show and we write groundbreaking legislation anybody with a good idea can come to the show i'll help them develop it into a bill and we're just waiting to, to get him into Congress and uh, on the president's desk, the real one, um, and, a bunch of, and local governments and a bunch of things like that. So what is our tipping point? At what point do people accept that citizen legislation, that we actually have the capacity to write the laws that we're governed by as people? That's my question, and that's the question that I'm trying to answer by doing Action Radio. So mm-hmm. you might find that an interesting study as you, as you hopefully will look at more of our shows and go, oh, that's interesting. Um, the tipping point for me I thought was broken windows. Uh, that's what I'd heard, that Rudy Giuliani, when he became mayor of New York, because uh, people think, ah, you break windows, not a big deal. No, it is a big deal. It's the same thing as the fair evaders. In other words, it's, uh, it's like the kids, the malicious kids that, uh, you know, playing baseball, whatever, or just, they just go down the street breaking windows. Well, you arrest those kids, and then they don't go on to carjacking and, everything, and murder and everything else. Yeah, so it's absolutely right. Yeah, same idea. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Same idea. Yeah. But I was just thinking, if you read a book, uh, National Transportation Safety Board, study an airplane accident, study any aviation crisis, you know, the, the, probably the best one would be the, the one in Tenerife where the two 747s crashed into each other. Total human error, total arrogance, total all kinds of stuff. Any number of steps would have avoided that. But if you take a look at an airplane accident and then relate that, this might be a book for you, who knows, you know, and then relate that to uh, people that take their own lives. Uh, you can look at your family, the lack of communication. Uh, the taking away of something incredibly valuable, um, you know, loss of friends. Um, lo- you just you can just document. You could do a you could do a timeline 
uh, for your father and your two brothers and say, this is what happened in their life. And they go, oh, and you just mark the, mark the checkpoints that you think contributed to them taking their life. If you want to do that, it might be hard. I don't know. But it, I think it, it, and then so so you, you bring in you bring a risk analysis, an emergency, you know, a chain of events analysis to human beings. And I don't think that's I don't know if that's ever been done. But you know, maybe you, you can be the first. Been, I'm sure come back on the show. I mean, yeah. probably has been done by some psychologists and PhD students. Not and necessarily. Um, yeah, maybe. I, it's maybe, maybe, I maybe maybe not. Studied yeah. to know whether it, it does do does exist, but I, I, I'd have to think, I'd have to think there would have to be some studies about the whole behavioral analysis because, gosh, psychologists love doing studies. Yeah, but so don't assume don't this, Dump, because, you know, people don't relate things. I mean, I relate things in ways that I, I find few other people do. Um, and so this is something that, you know, who would look at an aviation accident to determine uh, causes of people taking their life? Well, to me, that makes perfect sense, but my brain is not does not work. Of course, after the show is over, guess what I'm going to look up? And I'm going to get back to you off the air. <clears throat> that's, a, that's, our, that's our next conversation. It's like, hey, look what I found. Or you know what? There's nothing there. So either way, I'm going to tell you. But uh, I mean, there's definitely yeah. studies that show, there are studies that will do one thing, like that will say that, uh-huh. um, you know, teens between this age, that if they've been given access to be able to talk and express their emotions, you know, right. they're... The, the chance of suicide drops by this much, and you know, there's those kind of studies out there. I don't have the numbers off the on my fingertips, but um, that's why the big thing always comes back to when you're looking at suicide prevention is opening up a discussion, because the it's the, the silence is definitely um, just not a good thing, as being you know not having anyone to talk to about what's going on. And I think we go back to what you say with men tend to more internalize what's happening. Right. Um, it's very stigmatized to, I think, be in therapy. I don't know. Women don't mind to be in therapy. I'm not sure you, you answer that for me, but I don't think men seek well, out. Well, I didn't find it useful. <laughs> I didn't find it any more useful than the, no. than the, the one pill that I took. Um, mm. It just didn't. I found the most useful... Uh, you know, was my own introspection um, and Facebook groups. No, I think because I, that's I found Facebook groups, people I, to talk to. You yeah, and I are similar in that regard too, but uh-huh. I don't think a lot of people think like us. But I, I, I understand because a lot of people ask me, gosh, how did you get through all of this, Sandra? But I've got the same, a similar sensibility as you. I, I sort of look at things very differently. But I also right. understand that a lot of other people just don't. They don't have the capacity to think about things the same way. But yes, yeah. hence why I was I wrote this book, you know, because no, I would, I would go back and kind of more analyze things uh-huh. a little bit more than what yeah. other people. I'm a, I'm a, you're probably a people watcher. Are you a people watcher? I oh, know constantly. I am. All I my life. I, well, survival yeah. skill initially, but then it became fun. Yeah. But I'm open to the fact, I'm understanding of the fact that I'm unique as well, that other people aren't like me. And so hence why um, they're going to need a little bit of extra help, right? Because yeah. they we need just club. don't think about the same way <laughs> we do. Well, we, we should call it the thinking like there's no box club, you know, because I say, do you yeah. think, people say, do you think outside the box? No, I think like there is no box. Oh, because if you think outside the box, there's still a box. Yeah. 
and I don't even give yeah, it that much credit. So I think you're, I think you're, you'd be a, you'd be the, the first member of the, the, the thinking like there is no box club. There's no box. <laughs> I, yeah. I think I might be. Yeah. You yeah. and me, right? Oh, yeah. You're, oh, you're we, we need to start this. Founder. We should start a Facebook yes. group. We'll call it thinking like there is no box. <laughs> that would be fascinating. I'm so glad we met. This is great. Yes. This is really encouraging. Yeah. Okay. Well, tell me about the book, the, when it's coming out and all the details, and then I'm going to let you go and I'll, I'll do something else. I've got, okay. I think, uh, Thomas Jefferson's, uh, you know, with the definition of the pursuit of happiness. I got that article. I've just been sitting on the bottom of my computer for a while. I might take that one on. So go ahead. Tell me about the book. When the where is Okay. Well, it's stuff. currently on, on pre-release. So pretty much you can buy it on any, any online store right now. You can, you can get it on pre-release. It will be delivered. It, it drops on April 4th is when it is officially releasing. For anyone that, any of your listeners in the Los Angeles area, I'm going to put this out there. I'm actually having a book signing and, and launch here in Los Angeles in Culver City at the okay. Village Well Books. Um, you can go to my website. Oh, sorry, that's on April 15th. So on Saturday, April 15th. If you go to my website, www.slrosterola.com, that's my initial, Sandra. Better spell, it. You better spell your name, too. Yeah. Okay, Rosterola, R-O-S-T-I-R-O-L-L-A.com. Um, you can find out when my book launch is happening. I'd love to, to meet you. You can come and say, hey, I heard you on Action Radio. That would be amazing. Uh, otherwise, on social media, I'm on Twitter, I'm on TikTok, I'm on Insta, Facebook. I think that's it. That's pretty much everything. And everything okay. is at SL Rosterola. I keep it simple. Um, but, yes, that's... Well, yeah, I have your name on the title of the show, too. So it definitely includes your website there. And I've shared stuff. And you could share anything to my... Send it my Facebook page. I'll get tagged in it. Uh, or just send me a message. Say, hey, can you post this? It's like, well, of course. <laughs> you know. Oh, so, yeah, so. fantastic. Thank you. Oh, yeah. Well, you've, you've got... You know, I'll give you one of my, my uh, constant invitations. In other words, you never need, never need to ask me if you want to come on the show. You hear something interesting, just call up. I've got your number. I'll know who you are. And say, oh, uh, his, you know, Sandra's back. <laughs> Let's get the revelations because oh I love gosh, it when different okay. people join in the conversation because we have such a varied schedule. You know, our reporters range from 16 to like 75. Um, every part of the country, uh, every classification of human <laughs> you can think of, somehow or another finds, finds their way to action radio, uh, all with the, the, the goal of, of fighting for freedom. And mental freedom, I don't know if anybody's ever thought of mental freedom as freedom, but it really is. The freedom to think and the freedom to, to take on things that uh, have not been thought about. As uh, I might just start that the Action Radio Out of the Box Club. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I've got like twenty groups already, so why not? You know, what's what's what's, what's one more <laughs> thought? But well, we have the Mind Project, which is kind of similar to what the, we're talking it's about. It's not the Out of the Box Club. It's not the Out of the Box Club, isn't it? The No Box Club. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for correcting me. I appreciate that. Yeah, thinking <laughs> like there is no box, but we need to put that into a nice thinking little like title. There is no box. Exactly. Yeah, I'll start the group and, and make you moderator and see what you think. <laughs> oh <laughs> no, please! I don't know. I'm oh, gonna, too busy. Okay, I fine. Just be a member. Yeah. Be a contributing member. Yeah. Okay. No, be interesting. Dedicated <laughs> to new things. Well, the Mind Project basically does that. We have the Action Radio Mind Project, and if I haven't invited you, I'm going to. Uh, so let me write that down here for myself. The Mind Project. That's where I put all the creative stuff. 
um, of things that uh, well, I'll bet you they'll find it. Well, I, I looked for a brief as we were talking. I didn't quite find anything. So maybe nobody has done because uh, the people that do accident analysis, they're very technical. They're like the, the mm-hmm. you used to be, you know, the, the STEM kits, right? So those STEM kits, well, I yeah. take the factors here, and they you know, say, we're like this, and I take the clipboard, and then let's check off the boxes here and see what happened. Well, they say the pilot, pilot error, weather briefing, yeah, and check that, and okay, maintenance, yeah, okay, check the logs. Yeah. They go through this formula. And, 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 and uh, taking your own life is not a formula, but I'll bet you there is a chain of events. And I think that that might be yeah. a fascinating oh, thing to look into. Oh, I do not. I do not doubt that at all. Yeah. I, I don't doubt that because that's the whole thing. Even even my one friend who was the inspiration for the book, uh-huh. when she read my book, she just went, oh, my gosh. My book made her think back, and she was able to put things together that she hadn't put together before. So, yeah, there's definitely a chain of events or signs and symptoms that we just didn't see. So, um, yeah. Makes sense Absolutely. to me. Absolutely. Yeah. Let me give you a round of applause here. And let's talk after April 4th sometime, whenever uh, you feel motivated to come back and, and tell us more about it. But, uh, Sandra, thank you so much. This has been great. Thank you for having me on the show, Greg. It was fantastic i had a really good time thank you so much oh you're very welcome and podcasts will be available top of the hour uh, about 10 minutes after so about 43 minutes from now you've already got the link uh, on your page or or it's tagged somewhere messenger um, for the show and so easy to find and uh, again it works live it works for podcasts works for everything we'll talk soon good luck to you i really appreciate uh, having you on thank you yeah all right take care now okay all right bye goodbye See the guests we have here? Yeah, an hour and a half. <laughs> it's, it's way too much fun. That's fascinating. No, I do want to look into that. I want to look into the, the idea of um, chain of event accidents, uh, natural, you know, uh, man-made disaster, and relate that to uh, taking one's life. Who knows? I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm on to something. Maybe not. You never know until you investigate. All right, let me play a few things for you. It is now 9.33. We've got just till the top of the hour left. And I think I'll get to that one article because it, it does uh, strike me as interesting. And so here's my book. (laughs) I'll I'll tell Sandra about this too, but this is my book, and I'll play a couple of other things. Greg Penglis here for my book, The Complete Guide to Flight Instruction. Everyone at some point in their life wants to learn how to fly. Few try. Even fewer go on to get a license. I believe a major reason for that is how we teach people how to fly. My book is designed to help you navigate the flight training system, but it's so much more than that. It really describes an entirely new way to teach flying. So if you've never tried a lesson or got discouraged in your training and quit for any reason, this book can help you. Don't be a rope pilot who just follows procedures. Be a thinking pilot who makes great decisions, who understands all the reasons why we do what we do. You can incorporate these principles into your own flight training at any time. The Complete Guide to Flight Instruction is featured on the Action Radio with Greg Pankless Facebook page and is available from Amazon.com. Well, that sounds good. Even better. Okay, how about your car? If you want the best service for your vehicle, please talk to James at Florida Stores Automotive, conveniently located at 6715 Caroline Street in the historic district of Milton, Florida, right between the Milton Bakery and the Blackwater Trail. 
Whether you need an oil change or an entire engine replaced, this is the place. The phone number is 850-623-6651. That's 850-623-6651. Call, ask questions, and get the information you need. Florida Stores Automotive is a full-service automotive shop for both domestic and imports, modern and classic. It is a family-owned business here in our Milton community. Open weekdays from 7.30 to 5 p.m., Florida Stores Automotive is a convenient place to keep your car maintained and on the road. Ask them about Firestone Tires and the rotation and maintenance plan. Florida Stores Automotive. I go there. You should, too. Do you know your way around healthcare, insurance, pharmacies, surgery, alternative treatments and choices? I don't. Which is why I'm so glad I met Priscilla Romans, had her on Action Radio, and learned about health patient advocacy. She is the founder of Great Care. And now as an affiliate of Great Care, we are proud to offer through our discount code, WYL, which stands for Write Your Laws, a 10% discount. Great Care saves you both time and money. They provide medical advocacy, consultation, advice, and recommendations nationwide. Their website is greatcare.com. That's G-R-A-I-T-H care.com. You can email them at greatcare.adm at gmail.com or call them at 469-864-7149. That's 469-864-7149. Great Care, better health through better knowledge and advocacy. Action Radio. Part of the ADHD Radio Network, the ultimate free speech zone. We the people give our consent to be governed through writing the laws by which we are governed and have the power through juries to nullify the laws by which we do not consent to be governed. At Action Radio, we don't report the news. We are the news. Every other show reports what has happened. We talk about what can happen. From the questions no one has thought to ask, to the answers no one has thought to consider, to the actions no one has dared to take, that is Action Radio. And I'm back live, so if you want to join me here, 215-383-3832, you can also uh, go on live chat, uh, Sinite77 uh, dropped in here, and uh, we just had a fascinating chat with, uh, with Sandra Rostiroda uh, with her book, Making Friends with Monsters. And so anybody that's uh, had any kind of uh, dysfunctional family relationships, you know, uh, jobs, <laughs> it's pretty much everybody, uh, the monsters are out there, and the monsters are your own internal uh, emotions and how you deal with uh, the various crises that uh, that come up in everybody's life. So it's uh, it's quite interesting to delve into that. Uh, you know, like I say I got some experience, probably more than I should. Yeah, I say, uh, what is it? Too much life experience for my for my years. <laughs> you know, that's, that's kind of how it works. Um, not as bad as some people's lives, but certainly more challenging than than a lot of people's lives. And that's kind of where I put myself. All right, 
let's talk about something completely different here. Uh, so again, first half hour, I was thinking of doing the economic stuff. Uh, Calman calls, and I'll always take calls over, uh, you know, just talking about stuff. I'd much rather talk to people because uh, it's more interesting. And then we had Wendy, and then we had Sandra. And now I've had this article sitting uh, at the bottom of my um, my computer for a while. And this is from the Tennessee Star, and one of my favorite uh, news sources. Tennessee, there's a, there's a bunch of star, I think, magazine or news outlets in the South. Tennessee Star commentary. And this is Thomas Jefferson's meaning of the pursuit of happiness, which I thought might be appropriate considering we're just talking about people taking their own lives. And this is from March 3rd. So three weeks old, something like that. Anyway, nice picture of Jefferson there. Jefferson, my favorite of the founding fathers, uh, followed closely by Benjamin Franklin and the rest of them are kind of like, okay, (laughs) probably George Mason next for, for the constitution. Um, Madison, and I'm not a Hamilton fan. I'm sorry, I'm just not a Federalist. I'm an Anti-Federalist. So if you look at the Federalist Papers and the Anti-Federalist Papers, you're going to find me firmly in the Anti-Federalist camp. Constitution uh, gave way too much power in certain areas and uh, uh, really was was above and beyond what they needed to do from the Articles of Confederation and and really screwed things up. It's a great Constitution, as Constitutions go, but as far as governing a free nation, um, there's a lot of things that could have been done differently. And we can amend it. We can correct those things, like the the Commerce Clause, uh, some of the other uh, things that are in there, just like really stupid. For the most part, it's pretty good. All right. So Thomas Jefferson, <clears throat> people say, like, you know, he said in the uh, Declaration of Independence, we have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, what's that? I mean, we say these things, but do you know what they mean? You know, and 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 obviously, it's not uh, the, the interpretation is you're not guaranteed happiness. You you get to pursue it. Well, pursuing happiness, you know, to me means doing what you want to do, living up to your potential and being able to keep, you know, the fruits of your labors, your property. Uh, that's what makes me happy, happy being, being living up to my potential, doing, you know, adventurous, wonderful things, not being restricted, being able to exercise my rights and be able to keep my property. That's what makes me happy. Pretty simple. Let's we'll see what, uh, what Barry Brownstein said. He says, the idea of the pursuit of happiness is in our societal DNA, yet this unalienable right immortalized in the Declaration of Independence has often puzzled people. What exactly did Jefferson mean? Well, you know, when I read this, I thought, yeah, I'm kind of curious too. <laughs> so let's find out. He says, in her law review article, The Origins of the Pursuit of Happiness, Carly Conklin, that's C-O-N-K-L-I-N, observed the widespread societal misunderstanding about the nature of happiness. Jefferson didn't mean the un, didn't mean, excuse me, the unalienable right to the pursuit of happiness provides an unmitigated right to pursue that which would make one feel good. Absolutely right. You know, your rights and where other people's rights begin <laughs> kind of thing. Uh, and then she says, Conklin described Jefferson as a meticulous and deliberate writer and proponent of the rights and duties of man who would not include a vague phrase in a quite particular declaration of man's natural and political rights. Jefferson was influenced by William Blackstone's commentaries on the laws of England. So I guess I have to read that now. Uh, Conklin wrote of Blackstone's argument, the pursuit of happiness is the primary method by which men can know and then apply the law of nature as it pertains to humans. Of course, the next question, what's the law of nature, right? She says, Blackstone himself wrote that individuals can discover what the law of nature directs in every circumstance of life by considering what method will tend the most effectually to our own substantial happiness. Okay, now I'm confused. (laughs) That's like gobbledygook to me, but let's see if we can figure it out. She says, Conklin clarified, this is like an an author writing about an author who wrote about what Jefferson said. (laughs) Sorry, we're kind of like fourth hand here. She says, Conklin clarified the implications of Blackstone's argument. Happiness, in this sense, 
is synonymous with the Greek concept of eudaimonia. I have no idea what that means. I don't even know if I pronounced it correctly. It says it evokes a sense of well-being or a state of flourishing that is the result of living a fit or virtuous life. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. A fit life, you know, things, it's not, not that you're healthy physically, but you do things that fit. You do things that are, that are proper and virtuous. And, and the whole the Constitution is based on virtue. You know, they said that the, this nation will never be, uh, the Constitution will not succeed if not governed by virtuous people, which we don't have right now. We have a deep state. Hence the problems. I mean, why else would the government steal the government so the government could do what they wanted in, in complete abrogation of, of all the, uh, the constitutions and the laws and things and uh, just make stuff as they go along? They are not fit. They are not proper. They are not, certainly not virtuous. So therefore, you know, them pursuing their happiness is at our expense and therefore not a legitimate pursuit of happiness. That's how I would define it. She says, Jefferson embraced this meaning of happiness in a letter to his eldest daughter, Martha, uh, and then his parentheses, Patsy. I'm not sure what that is. Jefferson advised living a virtuous life is the key to happiness. Uh-huh. Well, that's it. Part makes me pretty happy doing action radio. Uh, it says, Inui, that's E-N-N-U-I, Jefferson wrote, is the most dangerous poison of life. According to Jefferson, the antidote is developing daily those principles of virtue and goodness which will make you valuable to others and happy in yourselves. Well, I mean, Anne Rand would question that. You really have to be, she reversed the priorities. I mean, she didn't want people to do evil to others, but she really thought that you, the most virtuous is to, is to live out your, your purpose, to live you know, for yourself in a way that maximizes what you can do. And in, in serving your own purpose, you're also going to help other people. But the goal is not to help other people first and then serve your own purpose. The goal is to serve your purpose first and help other people. You know, uh, uh, The Fountainhead, one of my favorite uh, stories. Uh, and I'm too ADHD to read the book, so I watched the movie with Gary Cooper. Uh, basically, you know, says that uh, he builds for himself. But other people who like his work get the benefit of his work, but they can't change his work because he does it for himself. He builds what he builds the way he wants to build it, you know, and, uh, and, and it's like take it or leave it. And if you take it, then you take it on his terms and his building. Now, these buildings are functional, they serve people, they do great things, and they're wonderful and beautiful and all that, but it's on his terms. So he's living his potential. His virtue, his virtue to himself, you know, is to live out his purpose on his own terms. And so that's how Ayn Rand would look at this, I think. Um, but we don't know about uh, our, our new author here because I don't know that much about her yet, but we'll keep going. Jefferson left no room for doubt about the means to happiness, health, learning, and virtue will ensure you're happy. So he does mean living, living a fit life, okay? So, so, so stop with the drugs, you know, stop eating all the sugar, <laughs> you know, stop, taking, uh, stop listening to doctors, <laughs> you know, get healthy. <laughs> An apple a day was for a reason. Uh, they actually didn't think of doctors as the best people to see at, at that particular point. If, if, you know, if you're eating an apple a day to keep the doctor away, then what does that say about doctors? You know, you're better off with apples. Well, it was interesting. All right, back to the article. Health, learning, and virtue will ensure your happiness. Learning, yeah, I believe that too. Uh, so health, virtue, and learning, uh, they will give you quiet uh, conscience, private esteem, and public honor. Ooh, here we go. Quiet conscience, private esteem, in other words, you, you, for yourself, and public honor. This is the recognition of everybody else. Back to the article. Pointing us back to Blackstone, Conklin put it this way. Rather than being fleeting or temporal, such happiness is real and substantial. It is real in that it is not fictitious, not imaginary, but true genuine. It is substantial in that it pertains to the substance or the essence of what it means to be fully human. 
Thus, for Blackstone, to pursue happiness was to pursue a fit or rightly ordered life, one that was in harmony with the law of nature as it pertains to man. Then she says, the wisdom of Blackstone and Jefferson is consistent with the latest academic research on happiness. Once we are beyond the necessities of life, and no, these necessities do not include electric cars, hedonic, or other changes in life circumstances, uh, do little to impact happiness. She says, one researcher, uh, Sonia Lubomirsky, Sonia Lubomirsky explained, happiness, more than anything, is a state of mind a way of perceiving and approaching ourselves and the world in which we reside. Leonard Reed believed the pursuit of happiness was a spiritual process. In his book, Elements of Libertarian Leadership, that almost sounds like a contradiction, right? Uh, Reed wrote, we are truly happy only when we are in a perpetual state of hatching our own consciousness, opening to infinite consciousness. By hatching, Reed referred to the ideas of the Greek philosopher Heraclitus, H-E-R-A-C-L-I-T-U-S, who believed, in Reed's words, we are creatures in transit. We can drift along as we are, just being our jolly little selves. We must grow, and if we don't, we decay. It's like a shark has to keep moving or it dies <laughs> to get the air <clears throat> over the gills. But uh, yeah, I think people have to keep moving or we die. You have to keep moving forward. You have to keep advancing. You have to keep learning. Um, or, you know, you die spiritually. And if you die spiritually, <clears throat> it's only a matter of before you die physically. And I believe that. Back to the article. The famed author of Man's Search for Meaning, Victor Franke, news to me, sorry, I don't read as much as I should, stressed that happiness must be obtained indirectly by pursuing a meaningful life. In his book, Yes to Life, In Spite of Everything, <laughs> there's a lot of sources here. Boy, I could read this. It'd take me several years. So I, I don't know, reading. Since Franke explained that life is not about getting what we want, pleasure in itself cannot give our existence meaning Thus, the lack of pleasure cannot take away meaning from life. Oh, okay. Frankie maintained happiness should not, must not, and can never be a goal, but only an outcome, the outcome of the fulfillment of duty. Huh. Article says, consistent with Blackstone and Jefferson, Frankie advised us to perform a Copernican, that would be Copernicus, revolution. A conceptual turn through 180 degrees, after which the question can no longer be, what can I expect from life, but can now only be, what does life expect from me? What task in life is waiting for me? That's exactly what we talked about uh, with Sandra. In other words, what is God's purpose? You know, and we haven't mentioned God yet. I do. The article doesn't. Maybe it does at some point. I haven't seen it yet. But what is your purpose? And if... You know, and is your greatest happiness to be found in living your greatest purpose? I believe my greatest purpose, I'm living now. Action Radio, a citizen legislature, empowering people to write the laws that they consent to be governed by. That is a revolution. That is a revolutionary concept. That is a new revolutionary concept brought about, you know, on a bike ride. <laughs> That's literally where, where I hit upon it that we could actually write the laws we consent to be governed by as people. And that's what it means to give our consent to government. Because I asked that. I was on a bike ride, and I'm asking myself, you know, Thomas Jefferson, the just powers of government come from the consent of the governed. Well, how do the government govern give their consent? Well, elections is the obvious answer, but those are stolen. So we can't give our consent through elections anymore because they're stolen. And until they're, they're safe and fair, that's not the way. Emails, phone calls, they don't care. The legislators respond to their party, which is why we shouldn't have political parties for members of, of the legislatures, and the lobbyists and the donors. 
the campaign folks, which again gets back to their party. So the loyalty of those in office is not to those who put them there through the elections. It's for those who stole the elections and, and pay for the, for the lobbyists. That's where their loyalty is because that's where, that's where the means to get back is. So are they pursuing a meaningful life? No. They're pursuing a very selfish life. So they can't be happy unless they get more power. Then they realize that more power doesn't make them happy. More money doesn't make them happy because what they're doing is not virtuous. They're not living a fit life. They're not mentally healthy. Hmm. Interesting. It's an interesting morning. Back to the book, the, the article. In Anna Karenina, Leo Tolstoy's Vronsky experienced the Inui, E-N-N-U-I, I still haven't got a definition for that yet, that Jefferson warns against. It's probably like ultimate pleasure. <laughs> Let me look it up right now. E-N-N, um, just, uh, we've got a little time. We've got 10 minutes. Where does it E-N-N-U-I. Let me find my online dictionary. Click on dictionary. Oh, I did look up uh, relating airline accidents to uh, suicide. I haven't found it yet. So E-N-N-U-I. Inui, a feeling of listlessness and dissatisfaction arising from a lack of occupation or excitement. Yeah, in other words, boredom. (laughs) The expression bored to death, you ever heard that? It's, It's true. You can be bored to death. So find something exciting. Back to our story here. In Anna Karenina, Leo Tolstoy's Vronsky experienced the injury that Jefferson warns against. Having obtained Anna Karenina's love, Vronsky soon felt that the fulfillment of his desires gave him only one grain of the mountain of happiness he had expected. Huh. Better to want than receive? (laughs) The wanting is better than the having? (laughs) I heard that expression, too. It says he was soon aware that there was springing up in his heart a desire for desires. Ooh. Inui. A desire for desires. Without conscious intention, he began to clutch at every passing caprice, hence the term capricious, taking it for a desire and an object. So it's not, so his happiness becomes its own self-fulfilling uh, thing where happiness is dependent on him finding more happiness. So he could never be happy because the source of happiness was, was finding more happiness in a capricious way. Hmm. That would totally confuse everybody. He, she says, Tolstoy illuminated the lesson that a life revolving around self-gratification doesn't work. <laughs> Bill Clinton. Vronsky's fulfillment allowed, showed him that the eternal error men make in imagining that their happiness depends on the realization of their desires. Why does it matter that the pursuit of happiness is so often misunderstood? It's a good question. Let me do this again. Tolstoy illuminated the lesson that a life revolving around self-gratification doesn't work. Vronsky's fulfillment showed him the eternal error men make in imagining that their happiness depends on the realization of their desires. No, it doesn't. She says, why does it matter that the pursuit of happiness is so often misunderstood? That's why powerful people aren't happy. You know, the accumulation of power can't make you happy because you never have enough. The accumulation of money can't make you happy because you'll never have enough. How much money is enough? One billion, five billion, ten billion? I don't know. I'd be happy with ten million because I could buy a jet and fly to anywhere I wanted. That would make me happy. So my, my happiness is very well determined. Is it determined by, by acquiring certain property? Yeah. A couple more guitars and a couple of airplanes. I'll be really happy in a couple of sports cars. Well, those are just material things, Greg. Yeah, they are. But I really like them and I enjoy them. And so uh, that's 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 what I'm pursuing. What else? What else? What really makes me happy? Action radio. Uh, empowering people with the idea that anybody can write a bill that could end up on the president's desk. That we are starting a revolution here. 
that we are changing the world in ways that they don't even see yet. That, you know, from me, one person, to the question is, well, what can one person do? Well, I don't know. I'm still finding out. I know what I can do as one person. Here we are, you know, 20 action radio groups, some amazing guests, some of the top people in the country, Trump's uh, senior advisors, you know, some of the top doctors in the country uh, have been on the show. I'm just one person. I don't have a production staff. I don't have a, of a huge marketing budget. I don't have a station behind me. I literally am one person with amazing people around me who have chosen to be here because it makes them happy. It's all voluntary. Nobody's required to be here. Nobody's required to listen. This is, a, this is a completely voluntary thing, and you do it because it makes you happier than not doing it because we have a purpose. That's what makes me happy. Back to the article. There is no right to happiness. Certainly others are not obligated to make you happy. That's for sure. Socialists think differently, by the way. She, she says you are free to pursue happiness if you don't trample on the rights of others to pursue, to pursue their happiness. And that's for the expression, you know, your rights uh, end where my rights begin. So it's not a right. This is why you don't have a right to food or shelter. You don't have a right to health care. You don't have a right to a job. You don't have a right to a guaranteed income. You don't have a right to anything. Your rights are purely a restriction on government from stopping you from acting, from stopping you from pursuing. So the exercise of your rights, your rights is really your pursuit of happiness, the right to speak freely, to worship freely, to, to media, express yourself to assemble peaceably, to own and carry a gun where you choose and the type that you choose, to have due process if you're accused, to have all kinds of rights of the accused so the state doesn't do whatever they want and judge you guilty uh, and then try and find the evidence or make it up. So the rights of the accused take up, I think, four of the six of the ten bills of rights. The right to have a federal government limited by a constitution that the states have... uh, have written, you know, the, 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 you know, the right to express yourself, the right to do the, just the basic things, but you don't have a right to something somebody else has. So in other words, if you, you know, those that think you have a right to food and shelter and medical care and all that kind of stuff, that comes from somebody else. If you provide it for yourself, yes, you have the right to pursue those things. You have the right to pursue a job and income and property and medical care and, and the right to do all those things, but you don't have the right to take them from somebody else. See, that's the difference. A right only exists in its free exercise, free from government coercion or intimidation or restriction. That's what a right is. So therefore, you cannot have something that gives you something and have it be a right. A right only exists in how you exercise it. Back to the article. The late minister and author Hugh Prather, Prather? Prather, P-R-A-T-H-E-R, warned, uh, I guess it's Prather for like Dennis, maybe it's his father. Hmm. Wouldn't surprise me. Hugh Prather warned, unhappiness is unfocused, agitated, and above all, scared. Having no integrity, well, that'd be most of the people in Congress, uh, certainly the deep state, Brandon, Obama, you know, et al., the shadow government, having no integrity, which they don't. Back to the article, no calm inner direction, which they don't. It takes its cue from whatever problem is perceived to be before it now. Mm-hmm. When we pursue happiness, this is from the article, when we pursue happiness, we have a responsibility to remove our self-centered barriers to happiness, pointing the finger at others while, quote, remaining unaware of our darker thought patterns. That'd be making friends with monsters, just what I talked about with Sandra. Remaining unaware of our darker thought patterns is a barrier to happiness. Instead, Prather encouraged us to become more aware of our petty, malevolent, and embarrassing thoughts. I'm going to tell Sandra about this article. Uh, in fact, I'll, 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 po- I'll post it to her as well. This is fascinating. 
Back to the article. Prather advises us to examine how we use time. Do we have a valuable purpose? If not, we rumble around and bounce haphazardly and hopelessly off every change time brings. In doing so, proof of our magnet or our excuse me, in doing so, proof of our insignificance and ineffectuality mounts. Discontentment grows. Feeling unhappy somehow may be reason uh, may reason. Oh, this is my 60-second warning in my ear. Let me start again. Feeling unhappy, someone may reason that someone or something else must be at fault. They, not I, are without virtue. Not That's projection. <laughs> not understanding the true nature of happiness fosters irresponsibility and threatens liberty. Let me say that again. Not understanding the true nature of happiness fosters irresponsibility and threatens liberty. I would say that's the justification for socialism, communism, Nazism, Marxism, fascism, all of the isms out there. Talk about your happiness is based on somebody else's irresponsibility and that you can then take what they have so that you'll be happy. And that, of course, as we know, doesn't work and results in the deaths of millions of people. Last part of the article. A society with a population less willing to pursue happiness in the sense that Jefferson, Blackstone, and Frankie advised is a society in which populist authoritarians multiply to exploit the vacuum. <laughs> COVID. Authoritarian shit, governors, mayors, you know, the, the health Nazis, Dr. Fascist, all those folks. All right? uh, and it goes, in other words, advice. Uh, a society with a population less willing to pursue happiness is a society in which populist authoritarians multiply to exploit the vacuum. Authoritarians and collectivists, there you go, I knew that was coming, authoritarians and collectivists will point to a myriad of, quote, problems obstructing happiness and assure us they have solutions. Happiness is an inside job, and those who understand the nature of happiness cultivate timeless virtues that lead to a life of meaning and purpose. Today, more than ever, the pursuit of happiness is essential to preserving liberty. Make sense? So this comes from Barry Brownstein, B-R-O-W-N-S-T-E-I-N. And this was in the Tennessee Star, March 3rd, 2023. So anybody's questions on that, that's where you found the article. I'll post it on my Facebook page. I'm done. Uh, This has been great. This has been a really cool day today. Tomorrow, uh, I'm not sure. I'll probably have a... We have two hours off, so I'll probably have a recording uh, of something. We've got uh, CJ, uh, CJ's Wellness Watch. She's going to join us uh, tomorrow. Other than that, I don't have anything scheduled, so I'll, I'll probably uh, pull out a, a classic W.E.B.Y. Uh, interview uh, and go with that. So I'll see you tomorrow at the website here, blogstockradio.com slash citizenaction. Uh, my legislative site is writeyourlaws.com, W-R-I-T-E-Y-O-U-R-L-A-W-S, writeyourlaws.com. Our substack is gregpenglis.substack.com. That's where I'll put all the economic things uh, uh, I was thinking of talking about today. And our Give, Send, Go account is givesendgo.com slash action radio. Back tomorrow, 7 a.m. I'm going to play you a few things and then play our musical selection for Wednesday. And see you tomorrow, 7 a.m. Central Time. This is Greg Penglis for Strike Force, your source for pure energy. Strike Force is a concentrated energy drink that turns a half liter of your favorite beverage into an energy drink. You make your energy drink yourself. Action Radio is an affiliate of Strikeforce, so our listeners get a 20% discount. All you do is add our code, W-Y-L, to the discount code window at checkout 
W-R-I-T-E-Y-O-U-R-L, comes from our website, Write Your Laws. So, you can get your energy drink, a 20% discount, and help Action Radio change the relationship of we the people to our government. Not bad. Strikeforce is at StrikeforceEnergy.com. That's StrikeforceEnergy.com. Start your engines. Hello, this is Greg Penglis for our newest shooting range here in Milton, Florida. Stand your ground. My friend, Jason Myers, and crew are creating an incredible facility for our city. Stand Your Ground is located at 6632 Elva Street. The phone number is 850-789-1776. Their email is standyourground1776 at gmail.com. Here you'll find either in process or already going an indoor shooting range, axe throwing, archery, a rage room, self-defense classes, concealed carry weapons classes, security license training, paintball, a full-service gun store, and 24-7 online ordering. So come on down or contact them by phone, email, or website and learn how you can best stand your ground. From addiction to achievement, that is the story of Mike Lindell. It started with my pillow and now goes to my coffee. Action Radio is proud to be an affiliate of MyPillow. Our discount code is the same for all our product affiliates, W-Y-L, which stands for Write Your Laws. MyPillow pillows are guaranteed the most comfortable pillow you'll ever own. Action Radio is guaranteed to be the most controversial show you will ever hear. Check out their products with our discount code at MyPillow.com slash W-Y-L. That's MyPillow.com slash W-Y-L. Or order now by calling 1-800-544-8939. That's 1-800-544-8939. Sleep well so you can wake up and hear Action Radio live. This is Greg Penglis. So what is Action Radio? It is a radio show with its own citizen legislature. That's you, the listener. It is a fully interactive system of listeners, expert guests, social media, writing bills, legislator input, bill submission, lobbying, and citizen action. Action Radio is the future of talk radio using all the available technology in one completely integrated new system. You are listening to Action Radio Online with Greg Penglis. The webpage for all Action Radio shows and podcasts is blogtalkradio.com slash citizenaction. Please share our show with all your friends and family, both nationally and internationally. The guiding principle of Action Radio is this. We the people give our consent to be governed through writing the laws by which we are governed. Thank you. 